We recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to Anthony Aylman for signing up and to Tam for supporting the show. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or you just want to increase your financial support of the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This episode was produced by SH and New Guy. This is Sam. And this is Fight Study. We did an episode on Southpaw about Palestine with Palestine Action. Continuing that conversation for Fight Study, we have Palestinian MMA fighter, activist, and coach Rami Dowd. So glad to finally get you on the show, Rami. So glad to be here, Sam. It's such a pleasure. Big fan of Southpaw. As you know, I've been supporting you all via Patreon and uh, you know all of the community that you've created, and it's truly an honor to be here. I really mean that. Feels like whenever we're talking about Palestine and talking to a Palestinian person in the West, the best place to start is how their family got here. So what's the origin story of your family coming to the U.S. and how they ended up in Illinois? My father's family is from a town called Zarnuka in, in Palestine. And Zarnuka was ethnically cleansed in 1948. So my father, who was born in 1960, was actually born displaced. He was born in El Khalil, which is uh, known as Hebron. And uh, so he lived there until seven. And when he was seven, his family was again forcibly displaced by the Zionists. And uh, they fled to Jordan on foot. They returned back to Palestine for a brief time. And when my dad was college age, he went to Beirut, Lebanon for education. And that's when he met my mother, who was Lebanese. He met her in Beirut. And uh, there was a civil war going on at the time. So my parents uh, met, had a great relationship, got along well, and both decided to come to the United States, first arriving in Kansas City, and then finally uh, settling in Chicago. And that's where I was, you know, that's where we're from. That's where my sibling is from. And we've been in Chicago ever since. So the Chicago area has one of the biggest Palestinian communities in the U.S. Do you know how that happened? I do, actually. It's a real, it's a kind of an interesting story. So. In 1893, there was an event called the World's Columbian Exposition, not Columbia from the country, but sadly named after Christopher Columbus. Um, And it was supposed to be like the 400 year anniversary of Columbus's, you know, uh, discovering um, heavy air quotes there, uh, the United States. And so there was a big festival in Chicago and Palestinian vendors went there to sell like uh, artifacts from holy cities in Palestine and to sell you know, just normal stuff you'd see at a fair, you know, just vendors trying to make a living. And they did very well. They saw that there was a a market for Palestinian goods, products, and services. So a lot of Palestinian men decided to move to Chicago because that's where the fair was. That's where they found success. And they started living in the Chicago area, the south side of Chicago, the south loop. At first, it was all men. So they would live in all uh, male boarding houses and different, you know, types of living situations like that. After World War II, 
a lot of Palestinian families started to come to Chicago because, you know, the men, the husbands, fathers, brothers had already been in this Chicago area working. And originally the men, their plan was to work, make money in the States and go to Palestine to retire. Now, after Israel's continuing, you know, occupation and expansion and taking Palestinian land and territory, uh, the right of return was taken away from Palestinians. So they decide they needed new places to to call home. Um, and Chicago, just because of that, because of the 1893 fair that saw Palestinian uh, people become entrepreneurs in the United States, this was a, a logical, so, you know, logical answer. Let's live in Chicago. We've already established some sort of community there. We have, you know, some semblance of roots there. So since we're displaced, maybe we can make it work here. And ever since then, there's been a very large Palestinian population in Chicago with some areas, uh, some areas such as Bridgeview, Oak Lawn, Palos Hills, even known as Little Palestine amongst Palestinians and non-Palestinians for the amount of Palestinian restaurants, businesses, cafes, and what have you. So yeah, that's the origin of, of that Chicago. Yeah, there's an irony where you're from Palestine, you come to the US to do some business, and then you can't go back. Whereas if you're Jewish American, you have the ability to go to Israel and then gain citizenship or visit or live in that occupied territory. That's absolutely correct. I always use the example of my father, who was born in Palestine, cannot go back to Palestine. But uh, an American Jewish person born in wherever, Philadelphia, New York, can go and gain Israeli citizenship and can live in my ancestral homeland, you know, and with, with no connection to that land other than being Jewish, right? Which Jewish people have always been welcome in Palestine. Jewish people's history is in Palestine. So to say they've been welcome is redundant, that they are part of Palestinian history. So Jewish people have always been a part of Palestine, but it's very odd, like you said, that someone with no real connection to the to the land can go and displace an indigenous person who has been there thousands of years and the one who has been there for thousands of years cannot return. Now, despite there being a large Palestinian population in Chicago, did you find growing up you had to be guarded about being Palestinian, perhaps where you didn't feel safe mentioning that? That was such a, such a great question, Sam, and I, I actually appreciate you asking that because the answer is yes. And I find it very interesting that you'd ask that because that's obviously coming from a very informed place. Like you as a non-Palestinian really understand the, the nuances. And to me, it's, you know, when I read over your questions uh, before this you know, talk that we've had, it seemed like they're almost coming from a Palestinian person. So I have to applaud you on the research you've done, how, how much you know about Palestinians, because absolutely, yes, it was, it was really a horrible experience to share with people that I was Palestinian for the majority of my life up until maybe 10 years ago. Uh, you know, I would school children, elementary school would say things like Palestinians are terrorists or me and my family, we support Israel. That would be their response when I would share. Imagine as a child that I'm Palestinian. It's just who I am. Uh, it's not political. You know, of course it is now I understand it, but to, I'm just sharing a fact as if my you know, I was born in Chicago. I'm Palestinian. These are just facts about who I am. And that was not accepted by my peers, even at a very young age. Did you ever feel an internalization where to be accepted in America, you thought you had to distance yourself from Palestine or even criticize it? I, the, the furthest I ever went was distancing myself from, from being Palestinian, which, although I understand why I did it, 
I am ashamed of it. I never went as far. I could never bring myself to criticize Palestine or Palestinians. Um, that felt like taking it too far. I just couldn't bring myself to do that. It would have made life a lot easier for me if I had in certain, you know, in many instances, but I was more comfortable being secretive and pushing my Lebanese identity because that seemed to be more accepted. So since we spoke the Lebanese dialect of Arabic, since I'd been to Lebanon, even as a child, I've never been to Palestine. So to this day, I pushed that I was Lebanese. And a lot of my close friends didn't even know I was Palestinian until years and years of friendship. Um, I grew up in a pretty, I grew up after being born in Chicago, we grew up in a town called Plainfield, Illinois, which is just the way it sounds. And it was not a very welcoming place for people from marginalized groups and people who have marginalized identities, to say the least. So Lebanese, it sounded, you know, exotic and different, and maybe they'd heard of Lebanon in some non-offensive capacity, but Palestinian brought such, such a, had such a stigma that just even saying I was Palestinian or that my dad is from Palestine, was there was backlash. I'm sure as a child, it's also hard because you're not equipped to deal with all the things that come with that. So it's just easier to avoid it. Yes, exactly right. And the, there was a, a point where I stopped saying that I was Palestinian. And that was when we were in class. Everyone was supposed to go up to the front of the room and point on a map where they were from. So I went and pointed and said, I'm from here. I'm from where my family's from here, right? You know, people say, oh, well, my grandpa's from Poland. They'd point to Poland on the map. You know, it was like a geography exercise for, for the kids. And when I pointed and said I was from Palestine, and I'll never forget this. My teacher said, oh, you mean Israel? She said, there is no Palestine. And I remember that, that really devastated me. That was, after that, I just kept saying I was Lebanese because the way that teacher made me feel on that day was, uh, I mean, it's, it's still affects me to this day when I think about it and I think about how cool she was because I'm a child, like you said, unequipped to even answer back. How do I respond to that? My teacher, someone who I trust with my safety and is here to educate me and protect me is telling me that where I'm from doesn't exist and that I'm wrong as if I'm, you know, some kind of fool that doesn't even know where I'm from. So that's like a small example of the type of stuff I dealt with on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it's cruel to do it to an adult but to a child, that's like so much for a child to even compute. They probably can't even understand what's happening. They just have feelings, but they don't even have the words for those feelings yet. Trying to explain like colonialism, that type of erasure, you know, those are big ideas that kids aren't ready for, but whether they're ready for it or not, sometimes based on how you were born, who you were born as, you're forced to deal with that. And I want people to understand it's cruel. Yes. Probably listeners understand that's cruel, but it's even worse when you're doing that to a child because children are apolitical. They just want to play. They should be allowed to be kids. So it's not just cruel and racist, but you're also, as an adult, robbing a child of their innocence. Absolutely. It was overwhelming. I, I knew I felt violated in some way. That's how I remember feeling. I remember feeling I'd never felt anything like that before. It was a new experience for me. It was a new sensation. And I remember feeling like violated and it just struck me to my core. Like I've, I felt that in my soul. And it was, again, I couldn't explain exactly how I felt, but I remember thinking, I can't tell anyone I'm Palestinian because I never want someone to make me feel like that ever again. I know the way some immigrant families deal with it. 
when they have intersecting identities, maybe instead of saying they're Lebanese, sometimes they'll just say, I'm American. I'm American just like you. They'll embrace more that American identity, you know, because European whites, they don't have to give their origin story. They're just like, I'm an American. I'm from Chicago. I'm from wherever, right? So did you ever feel like that where you wanted to just embrace that American identity or you always felt like, no, I want to at least embrace part of my heritage? I would say things like, for example, we've all, we've all, uh, we're all familiar with the where are you from and what that means. That basically means you're not white. Explain yourself, right? Explain your your place here. Explain why you're here, right? But like you said, uh, someone from Russia or Poland or Ukraine never has to do that, even though you know they might be born somewhere else, or their father might be from somewhere else, or their grandmother may be from somewhere else. They never have to explain themselves. So I did get tired of people that, you know, what are you or where are you from? So I would just kind of be passive aggressive sometimes and say, oh, I'm from Chicago, because that's the truth. And if you want to ask me, oh, what race are you or what, what's your ethnic background? Be courageous enough to ask me that. Don't do it in this weird sideways way. Oh, so where are you from? Oh, I'm from Chicago. How about you? So I would do that a lot and be <laughs> passive aggressive in that way. Uh, and I'm sure as a, as I'm sure as a teenager or as, as a child, I said things like, oh, I'm, I'm American. You know, I'm sure I said that, uh, you know, and uh, sometimes people would answer for me. I remember I'd be in work or, or school as a young person and someone would ask me and someone would butt in, oh, he's American like everybody else, you know, and that was their way. They felt like they were defending me by saying that, right? I mean, there is a point where we feel like that's the more progressive thing. And then now, as we get more politically engaged, more educated about the world and geopolitics and about our own ethnicity, culture, heritage, and being unashamed, being proud of who you are, we realize, no, that's not progressive either. Not at all. It's not. And if I could go back, I would definitely just be saying that I'm Palestinian. And But it's just, it's hard. It's easier, it's easier to say now. I know how to protect myself. I'm confident now. My self-esteem isn't what it was when I was a child. So I don't know. I go back and forth on whether I did the right thing. It, it does bother me that, I, you know, sometimes I feel like, oh, I was a coward. You know, I should have, I wasn't the one with the issue. They were the ones with the issue with me being Palestinian. They should grow. They should, you know, adapt and, and become better people and try to understand that this is where I'm from. And that's it. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean I'm here to harm anyone. It doesn't mean I, you know, hate any certain group of people. This is where my father is from. He's Palestinian and I identify as Palestinian. And I wish that I made other people uncomfortable rather than being forced to be uncomfortable for the majority of my childhood. So you touched upon this, but how has your Palestinian identity evolved over the years as far as how you view yourself and how open you are about it? When I was 25, I had my third professional fight. And after the fight, I, after I won, I raised uh, a Lebanese like scarf that I had and a Palestinian scarf that I had. And when I was interviewed, I ignored the, you know, I was interviewed in the ring, the adrenaline pumping, and I ignored the questions and I just started yelling out, I'm like, Palestine, Lebanon, that's what I re represent. I was yelling at the top of my lungs and, you know, my friends and family were <laughs> cheering and excited. And I remember uh, the promoter at the end, uh, the show came up and he said, wow, I don't think I've ever had anybody yell, you know, Palestine in this, uh, in this arena before. And I was really happy with all this. Then my parents, maybe a week or two later, asked to sit, me sit down with me and speak with me. And I didn't know, I could tell it was a very serious conversation that they were ready to have with me. And they both told me that they were really scared of me embracing 
being Palestinian and what that could mean. And of course, my, my father is a proud Palestinian, but he's also a realist. He's saying, okay, we're in America. If you yell you're Palestinian, the FBI could be interested in you. You know, who is this pro-Palestine, you know, militant guy shouting about Palestine after he, you know, that's the, the paranoia and the fear that we grow up with and that we have in our community. And it makes it easier to only talk about these things with people who we trust. But again, now I have a, I scream that I'm Palestinian from the rooftops, right? You ask me, oh, what do you like to do for fun? I'm going to mention somehow in that, that I'm Palestinian. And I don't know if it's making up for lost time or if it's just, I just need to share this. This is a part of who I am. And I'm very, I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of, you know, my people, of where I come from, our struggle, what we've done, what we've, what we've been through, what we've survived. There's no shame in being a Palestinian. So it's, it's definitely been a, like a seesaw, you know, from one extreme to the other, being scared to share that I was Palestinian to now being very proud that I'm Palestinian. Now, anyone that knows me is going to know I'm Palestinian, what I think about the occupation, what I think about Israel. I'm, I'm not going to make that a, a secret anymore. I'm going to be very clear and open with who I am and what I believe. I know we both talked about how at one time the way the U.S. reacted to Palestine was how they react to the DPRK. And in fact, younger listeners might not know this, but Palestine was used as anti-DPRK propaganda to say the DPRK is evil because they side with Palestine, not Israel. The DPRK's association with Palestine meant they were bad. So at one time, the West viewed Palestine more negatively than North Korea. This was true even for many Western leftists, Marie Bookchin being an example. What they used to say was, just because a country opposes the West doesn't mean they're good, which does this rhetorical trick where somehow toppling them and supporting the West is morally good. And you see this psychological tactic echoed even today. And a lot of those effects, especially for North Korea, still remain without people remembering the cause or how Palestine was used. But I remember how you said people didn't think the public sentiment about Palestine would change, but it's begun to. And maybe the same will happen for peace and reunification in Korea. So let's talk about that. U.S. public perception of Palestine is still not great, but how has it changed since when you were growing up? It has changed far more than I ever thought it would in my lifetime. And I never thought that I would see even neoliberal media advocating for Palestinians in any capacity at all. Not that they're allies of Palestinians or do a good job of speaking up for Palestinians, but I'd never thought I would see anything other than what I grew up with, which was the, the media was essentially just spewing Israeli propaganda. And that's all we knew about Palestine as far as like if we we're learning from American media, film, TV. So it's, it's changed for the better. And that does give me hope. And I know I see it in my, my father's eyes when I speak with him. He never imagined that he would see any sort of uh, increase in people's empathy for Palestine. And now the general public, the general American public, there's some, there's some dialogue, there's some discourse here when it comes to Palestine, whereas before there was none. You had to really be a, a leftist, so to speak. And even then, as, as we've spoken about, it doesn't necessarily mean you're an ally of Palestinians. So it's, it's gotten a lot better and it gives me hope. And I think 
Palestinians being able to take out their phone and record their day-to-day life showing people. Again, that's always what changed, right? No one believes you until you show them. Um, Black Americans have been saying for decades how the police abuse and mistreat them. And many people thought they were exaggerating or outright lying. And now we have countless videos of the police doing just that, abusing, brutalizing, and killing Black Americans and treating them differently than they do other groups. And now even, you know, your moderates, your neoliberals, oh, yeah, you know, I don't agree with the police. There's definitely some bad apples in the bunch, right? And with Palestine, that's kind of where we're at now. We see them, yeah, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the Israeli military, but I just hope they could figure it out. Still, that is an improvement. Other, you know, that's an improvement over Palestinians are terrorists. That's an improvement over Palestinians are horrible people who want to kill all the Jewish people, right? Like this is an, an improvement and I'll take it as long as it keeps going in that direction. Now, how did your interest in politics and activism start? I think when you're, the advantage I have being Palestinian is you already learn from a very young age that uh, the media is skewed towards a certain way. I learned that you can't trust the words of, you know, big governments. Like I, I always knew, I think being Palestinian, to really sum it up, to be being Palestinian helped me a lot because I saw through a lot of the BS that other people did not see, especially as a young person. You know, I, I didn't believe that America needed for its freedom to attack and occupy Iraq, right? That was, I knew that was a load of BS, right? I didn't need to study this. I, didn't, I just knew it. I know because that's what they do. We know how the world treats Palestinians. So therefore, we have to imagine that there's a system in place that treats marginalized and oppressed people a certain way. And that the same will be true for all marginalized and oppressed groups. I knew it wasn't just Palestine that was being oppressed, occupied, and mistreated. I knew that there's many communities going through the same thing. And I think being a Palestinian helped me have empathy for other marginalized people and to feel in solidarity with them rather than, oh, I just support Palestine, but I'm a uh, neoliberal in terms of my views on everything else, right? No, I understood. I could see through um, the facade. I could see through propaganda, uh, even things like the police. I know that the IDF trains with the American police, that many American police forces work with the IDF. So from a very young age, I did not trust the police because I know they work with the IDF. How can I trust anyone who can work with the IDF? So, you know, when people began, when Black Lives Matter really blossomed in the U.S. I was right there with them. There's no convincing needed. I agree with this 100%. And my family and I in private have had these talks since I was a very young child. And it's just so funny to see that a lot of the progressive, educated, uh, you know, Americans have the same philosophies that Palestinian groups have had in the U.S. for 30, 40, 50 years. We've known all this stuff. That the our freedom is not, you know, we don't need to attack and occupy other countries for our freedom. That the police brutalizes marginalized groups. That they do not keep us safe. All of these things I've understood since childhood, and I think my Palestinian identity helped inform these decisions and opinions. I often say being Korean is my identity and my political lens. So it seems also for you, being Palestinian is not only your identity, but also your political lens. Absolutely. That's very well put. That's exactly it. 
I often use Palestine to explain how to resist the shackles of oppression and occupation, you need a national liberation movement. Because Palestinians, like most indigenous people, operated as various indigenous communities rather than as a nation state. I've heard you mention this before as well. But now, everyone who wants to free Palestine waves the same flag. And rather than just speaking of their individual communities, they talk about Palestine. Whenever a people are oppressed, it is inevitable that you will form a national identity. So whether you want a nation state or not is moot, just as whether you want to use money or not is moot. It's the game we're stuck with. And to survive or even resist, you need money. So for a liberation movement to withstand and resist a superior military power that has the backing of the world's superpower, it has to come together under one flag and as one people, one tribe. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And this was something Palestine was unequipped to fight Israel, supported by the world's superpowers, because they existed as different groups of indigenous people. You know, people are often surprised to learn that Palestine didn't have a, uh, a national military or a navy or an air force. This is not how we operate. Palestine never operated as a nation state. Palestine was a, a group of different indigenous communities that did their own thing for many, many, many generations, right? And when the occupation began, Palestinians had no choice but to unify. So you have Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian Jewish folk, right? Not that there was fighting between them before, but now even if you have political differences, if you have you're in different socioeconomic classes, whatever the case may be, you have no choice but to unify. And that's why the strongest Palestinian movement was the PLO, which was a secular national liberation movement. It wasn't based on religious dogma hierarchy. It was based on Palestinians working together to fight a, a foreign invasion, an occupation. So this is very important. And this is one of the few times that I agree with nationalism is in the case of a people fighting for its liberation. It's, it's important for Palestinians to be unified. It's very important for Palestinians to work together. Because the number one thing, or one of the things that Israel does, is they try their best to make sure Palestinians are not unified, right? It's common knowledge among Palestinians and among, amongst academics who study Palestine that Israel helped create Hamas in the 1980s to weaken the PLO. And, you know, now, of course, it's, we don't know what, you know, without getting into that, um, they understood how important it was to weaken the national liberation movement, to add infighting, to add, you know, divide and conquer. And as we know, this has been done here in the States, it has been done all over. Divide and conquer is a commonly used tactic of oppressors and settler colonialists, and Palestine is no exception. So if their priority is to make sure we are not unified, we as Palestinians must be unified. It is necessary. It is very important, not only for our liberation, but for our survival as a people. Now, I've heard edgy leftists say the solution to the occupation of Palestine is the no-state solution. You got white leftist hero Murray Bookchin defending Israel's occupation and many of his followers agreeing with him. You got liberals saying two-state solution. But rather than what Westerners want or what white people think, 
What is it that most Palestinians want, Rami? So that's another great question. And I just want to say that the idea of a two-state solution is not only extremely offensive, but it's laughable. Asking an oppressed people to live side by side amongst their oppressors is a joke. And Palestinians are one of the few people that have been asked or that are put in this position. Oh, well, why don't you live side by side? Right? Well, did Algeria decide to live side by side with their French occupiers? Or did they fight and lose over a million Algerians in the fight for liberation and independence? Right? South Africa imagines, I mean, in a way, that's what many, you know, modern day South Africans want the ones that are remaining, the Europeans that came and oppressed people and mistreated them horribly. They're like, well, we just want our, you know, what we have and we want to live side by side. No, that doesn't work. You can live side by side with us if you dismantle the system that was created to oppress us. So the idea of a two-state solution is impossible. There, uh, people like the Zionists feel that they are superior. There's a system of white supremacy in place. They cannot live side by side with Palestinians. That's nonsensical. And anyone who says it is either ignorant, naive, or just intellectually dishonest. Palestinians want what I think most indigenous people want. They want their land back. That's the number one thing. This is our land, right? We have, in my family alone, we have olive trees and, and farms that are supposed to be passed down to me and, and my kids if I have children and their kids. Like This has been taken away from us, right? My home, my home that my father was born in, somebody else is living in it now, in the exact same home. This is our home. You know, we weren't wealthy people, we weren't rich, but we had a home. We shared resources. We shared everything. My grandmother would insist that every day before my family ate dinner, that my dad would go to all the neighbors and pass out food. That's how we lived. And this whole way of life has been taken away from us. So we want our land back. We want our way of life back. And we want the right to return to our homeland. This is our right. We cannot return. My dad cannot go. My dad is born in Palestine and cannot go to Palestine without being interrogated in some back room by the IDF. And God knows what's going to happen to him, right? We want the end of Israeli occupation. We want the dismantling of the racist system of settler colonialism that was created to make the lives of indigenous Palestinians a living hell. And a, follow, a question I get often is, okay, well, what about the you know, European Zionists who now live in is, you know, what is called Israel? And again, my answer will always be the same. Anyone who wants to work with us to dismantle the system that, of apartheid that was created by the Zionists, you, you can stay, right? Palestine has never been an exclusive area. We've had people from, when you see Palestinians, you'll see Palestinians who have origins and backgrounds from all over the world. But the idea was we all live together. There was no, okay, well, we're from Europe, so we're going to subjugate everybody else. No, there's... Palestinians who would be considered white based on their appearance. There's Palestinians who are black. There's Palestinians who are brown. They're Palestinian. You know, Palestinian isn't a specific thing in that sense, right? It, Palestinian is an identity. Palestinian is a culture. And people who want to live amongst Palestinians and help us dismantle a system of white supremacy, for me personally, of course, I can't speak for everyone, are welcome to stay. If you're going to help us fight the system that was created that you benefit from, yes, you're my neighbor. But no one has the right to take anyone's home, take anyone's land, to take anyone's rights, to take anyone's ability to travel freely. This, is, this all must end. And that really goes to 
why a two-state solution will not make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. And the leftists who say that Israel is, you know, its existence is just and that there should be a no-state solution, I, I get it. You know, some of those people are more interested in, in social media and in being edgy, as you said, and, you know, having followers. And I, I know lots of leftists like this, and I know you do. If you come to mind immediately, their opinion is meaningless to me. You know, they don't know what it's like to be Palestinian. They don't know what it's like to be a marginalized, oppressed human being living under a brutal military occupation. They're thinking about theory in a vacuum, right? They're not thinking of actual people and how this will work in real life. Yes. It's a intellectual exercise for them. Yes. Regardless of the cost. Yes. And it's offensive. I actually, in many cases, and I'm, you know, I'm nervous saying in many cases, I almost respect the outright racists more than I respect these people because these people really think they have some moral high ground, right? They think, uh, like you said, to them, it's just an intellectual exercise. Oh, it's fun to think about. Well, let's ponder this. And how about this? No, let them live under a military occupation. Let them have a pregnant family member die trying to give childbirth because they're in a line waiting to travel half a mile. Let them have their child be taken in an Israeli prison with no charges and held indefinitely. Let them experience one day as a Palestinian and let's see how their opinion changes. They are speaking from a position of privilege and a position of complete and utter ignorance. And the offensive part is that they think they know what they're talking about. To your earlier point about the two-state solution, a lot of liberals and progressives will say racism is institutional. Well, if racism is institutional, you don't make it better by breaking it up into two. Just to clarify your point, it's still the same institution that's going to be delegating and administering this two-state solution. Well, very well said. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. That's exactly right. Very well said. Another thing I think we can learn from Palestinian activists is in-house versus public criticism. You touched on this when you mentioned who you felt safe speaking about your Palestinian identity and who you didn't. I'm sure there are things Palestinians can criticize about Palestine, about Palestinian culture or different organizations or even religious factions. And I'm sure it happens in-house. But publicly or in mixed non-Palestinian company, you don't see that, or at least not often, because there seems to be an understanding that doing that will only fuel more aggression and violence against Palestinians. The West already hates and commits violence against Palestine. There's no good that will happen by adding more fuel to that. Like there's no quote unquote principled criticism of Muslims that won't lead to anti-Muslim bigotry, right? The West already hates Muslims. There is no lack of Muslim hate or criticism problem, right? And not all Palestinians are even Muslim, but anti-Muslim bigotry, much like anti-communism, isn't even about attacking the intended group, but is often an excuse to attack racialized people. And I think for some BIPOC Americans, due to being conditioned to seek white validation, they don't think about in-house talk versus what should be said in public. All some of them know is what they want to say to white society or white society. That's who they want approval from. That's all they know. Like white people are the teacher and they want to go tell teacher on you. But to be fair, why this white gaze may not occur to them is because they're mostly around white people and speaking to white people is the norm. So since white becomes the default, you're not thinking about what 
you should or shouldn't say in front of them. You're just thinking, I want people to respond to what I'm saying and agree with me. And the default for people is white people. The best way to explain it is talking shit about uncle at the family barbecue is not the same as talking shit about uncle in front of white racists on social media. But to you, maybe those white racists are just people because that's so normal and internalized racism is so normal. So then it's no longer racism, but normal. I think this awareness is even more important for those who are not members of an in-group, but think they have permission to make in-house criticisms. This line stepping always comes with the belief that this makes them more moral and principled, some white Euro enlightenment bullshit, acting as if colorblindness is the pinnacle of morality when colorblindness is really a white supremacist tool. And this is something I've been wanting to ask you. As an outspoken, unapologetic Palestinian person, can you speak to us about in-house versus public discourse and your thoughts about this? Absolutely. I really appreciate the the question and the way you frame the question. And to really get into it, I will never publicly criticize Palestinian people. You will never see me on social media. Oh, if Palestinians did this, then our liberation would come sooner and I'm sick. Again, these are in-house conversations. And because the many people reading might have negative opinions of Palestine or Palestinians. So now they're going to read my, you know, my frustrated uh, thoughts or my rant. See, see, I told you these Palestinians, look, they can't even work together. You know, they're going to use it as ammunition against us. However, with, let's say, someone like you, uh, someone like my good friend, uh, Elias, who we both know, uh, someone like Weiss, who I've become friends with online, thanks to Southpaw. Privately, with you three as an example of people we, we know together, mutual friends, I might tell you, hey, you know, this issue is happening. What do you think? Because I feel we're in solidarity with each other. And maybe your perspective can help. me. You know, I trust you. Uh, there are some Palestinians that are right-wingers. So I can't, you know, I feel more comfortable, not necessarily in terms of right-wing, like they're just, some Palestinians are, are anti-black and pro-US military. And so I don't trust them. I can't speak frankly with them. And if I do, it's going to be a huge fight. So I trust someone like you or Elias or Weiss way more with my opinion or critiques of, you know, Palestinian liberation than I would said Palestinian person. But again, that's a conversation I'll have in private. Like you and I have spoken about the the common things between Koreans and Palestinians. And it's been a really helpful conversation for me. And I've learned a lot from you. So I would share and be frank with you regarding Palestine issues that Palestinians face in terms of working together, different issues with different groups. I would share that with you because I trust you, but I will never publicly criticize Palestinians because again, it's going to be used as ammunition against us. For the same reason, I will never publicly criticize Islam privately. Different story. I might have things to say, but publicly, no, because again, I know how it's going to be weaponized against people that look like me. And I don't want to be working for agents of white supremacy in a roundabout way. That's not going to help my people find liberation and freedom at all. So I do have to be very careful, but I will make exceptions because I can't just have identity politics be the end all, right? So there are, again, there are Palestinians who I don't trust at all. I despise their viewpoints. They, you know, again, I, I, they could be anti-black, homophobic, 
Uh, they could be. They, some of them will even say, oh, you know, we're living better in, in uh, under occupation than we were before, you know? <laughs> so these people, I can't, these are my allies, right? And there are non-Palestinians who I would trust more with my real thoughts and real opinions and questions. But that's a very small, I just wanted to add that nuanced part so that my allies know that I trust them and I will speak with them, frankly, but I will never publicly criticize Palestine or Palestinians. Never. It does. I don't see the good it can do. I think to even add more nuance to this is like, let's say you have a Palestinian friend who's constantly talking on social media or publicly, not that they're a public person, but just to anybody, they feel the need to constantly criticize, let's say, the PLO or Hamas or something. It's almost like they need brownie points, right? And it's like, maybe some of what they're saying is true, but you still don't feel like they're on the same page as you because it's not that what you're saying is all false, though there's a lot of falsity there, but it's how you're using it as false, right? It's like the way you're doing this, you don't like it. I could say the same thing about Koreans feeling the need to constantly go on and on about the DPRK. Yes, a lot of what they say is wrong, actually, but there might be some truth to it. But I hate the fact that they feel like they have to constantly go on and on about it. Then it's not really about the DPRK. It's really about trying to earn some kind of brownie points. It's the same way why they always have to say that I'm American, you know? It comes from something you said before. You would only need to do that if you felt shame in yourself. You said now you have that self-esteem, right? You have that pride in yourself so you wouldn't need to say, hey, I'm an American. I mean, you are an American, but you would say you're Palestinian. You would be unapologetically who you are, your identity, right? And so I think it's the same thing. It's about for Koreans who talk about the DPRK constantly, it's about earning brownie points and wanting to be accepted as basically a white American, in my opinion, whether they recognize it or not. I think it's like an internalized psychological thing happening. So I think in that same way, you know, maybe they're a liberal and they're Palestinian, but the way they go about it how they want to earn brownie points, the topics they decide to discuss, the things that they think is priority, which is talking about, like I mentioned, the Hamas or PLO or whatever, right? These internal matters, the fact that they think those are the most important things to talk about instead of the occupation, then you know there's something wrong, right? You know they're not necessarily part of the same barbecue as you. Exactly. And so many, you hit it right on the head with the Hamas or PLO example. I see a lot of Palestinians say, listen, just because I support Palestinians doesn't doesn't mean that I support Hamas. I'm like, why are you even saying this? Nobody thinks that. Why'd you need to add that last part? Right. You adding that is so strange. It's like we don't correlate the two, right? We we know better. They're correlating the two, right? Exactly. They're making it seem like, listen, why would you even say that? Why would you even say that? That's like saying, oh, well, just because I like the color yellow doesn't mean I'm a homophobe. People, are, what? What? The? They have nothing to do. Why did you even <laughs> add that? Now that makes you look at, are you a homophobe? Like, why would you even need to say that? So that's what I, I, I don't like. And I don't like how, you know, when it comes to indigenous resistance groups, we never with other groups. Now, I shouldn't say we never, but it's imagine with indigenous Americans who fought against the Europeans. We wouldn't say, oh, yeah, you know, I really respect the uh, brave indigenous resistance who fought against colonialism. But, you know, some of them had weird opinions about this. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of, they're both bad. It's like, no, you, you'd be laughed out of a room, right? But with Palestinians, that's exactly what happens. Oh, you know, I understand Palestinians want to fight back against people who are, you know, committing a genocide against them. But some of their opinions, I don't necessarily agree with. It's like, okay, 
So what? What does that have to do with anything? I don't care. They're fighting against occupiers. That's the thing I'm focused on. Well, it seems like it's like white people, white Americans don't have to be perfect, but we have to be perfect, right? Yep. East Asians are known for model minority, but I think that type of general idea of we have to do everything perfectly spans the spectrum of a lot of racialized people. Yes, exactly right. We not only, because we're barely allowed to fight back, right? Palestinians are supported the most in the US, by the way, something I should have uh, mentioned earlier, when they die without fighting back. Palestinians are supported when they're a little girl who gets blown up in her home, clutching her toys, because it's hard not to have empathy for someone like that. But when Palestinians use whatever resources, whatever meager resources they have access to, to fight against their occupiers, that's when, okay, whoa, 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 hey, violence isn't the answer, and we can't imagine you have a side, one of the most powerful militaries in the world, with planes dropping bombs on people. There's no chance to fight these planes. We, could, we can't really fight these people and win. There's no chance, but we do it anyways because you have to fight your occupiers. I'd rather die fighting than die hiding and trying to shake the hands of the people who are killing me and my family. But when Palestinians fight back, which anyone would in this case, then there's, oh, these are terrorists, these are this, oh, they're religious fundamentalists, blah, blah, blah. These are indigenous people fighting back against occupation. Palestinians never went to Europe to attack Europeans or to attack Jewish people or to, this is, of course, Palestinians have no issue with these groups of people. Whoever decides to come to our land and kill us and take all our resources and banish us from our, our homes, are, they're going to be fought. They're going to be met with violence. This is, this is like, it, it blows my mind that people don't understand this concept. And instead of focusing on the reality of what Palestinians are going through, we focus on the, you know, the details of what these indigenous resistance groups believe in terms of their religious beliefs or in terms of this politically. These are indigenous resistance people resisting a foreign occupation. That's what we need to really focus on. And yes, you're right. We have to be perfect. We have to be perfect. And if not, then we're going to be seen the same as our occupiers. Our occupiers can do horrendous things every single day, and they do. And if a Palestinian resistance group has a member who has an unpopular opinion or says something derogatory about a certain group, now we're equal. We're both bad, right? Israel is bad, and the Palestinians fighting back are bad. They're all the same, and they need to figure it out. It's it's really it's laughable. If it wasn't so tragic and disgustingly offensive, it's, it's laughable. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash To your point, Palestinians are in a lose-lose situation. When a helpless child dies, like you mentioned, people are like, that's so sad. They should fight back. But if they do, they're terrorists. But now notice the difference in reaction by the West when it comes to white Ukrainians. If they die not fighting, that's sad. If they fight back, they're heroic. They're always portrayed in a positive light regardless of what happens to them, right? Everything is used to want you to support them. So you can see how this machine can be actually used in a way to gain sympathy. But then why isn't that same mechanism aimed towards the Palestinians, right? 
Now, to your point, there has been change, but that's more within people. I would say that hasn't necessarily changed with the media. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. And seeing how the situation in Ukraine was treated was infuriating. I remember the media was showing Ukrainian women creating Molotov cocktails to fight with. But imagine the media would never show, oh, here are Palestinian women creating Molotov cocktails. They would never, because those are terrorists, right? Children throwing rocks are considered terrorists. Children with slingshots are considered terrorists. Oh, and if you have a gun or any sort of weapon or a knife, oh man, now that's now you're just taking things too far, right? We can appreciate, even some Americans will appreciate the rocks thrown at tanks because, oh, look, that's adorable. This little kid really thinks he could, you know, but once we actually have the ability to harm our occupiers, like the way they've been harming us for over seven decades, then we've gone too far, right? So there's just a, we have a very small space that we can exist in and, and have the support of, of uh, people from all over the world. As soon as we begin fighting back at about less than 1% capacity of what our occupiers can do, then we're the terrorists. Forget that Israel literally terrorizes, by definition, terrorizes the Palestinian people every single day with bombs, with IDF soldiers patrolling every Palestinian neighborhood, with security checkpoints, with sexual assault uh, committed to Palestinian children and women and men in Israeli prisons and jails. Palestinians are terrorized every single day by the definition of the word terror and terrorism. So I don't see how a Palestinian fighting back against this can be considered a terrorist. How can we terrorize this mighty imperialist army that is supported by all the world's superpowers? And now the military is one of the world's most powerful militaries. And if every single Palestinian had a pistol, for example, we would still be no match for the Israel. We don't have a plane. We don't have a single plane. How can we, you know, just the idea that there's a conflict with two equal sides is just intellectually dishonest. It's not, it's not true. If all Palestinians were armed, we still couldn't fight to the capability of what Israel can do. I mean, look at it, especially now. America's like all Americans should have guns. But Palestinians aren't even allowed to have rocks. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. The British, when um, when the British first, you know, had control of Palestine after the end of World War One, they made it so that Palestinians who were even found with a single bullet, even one bullet, you were put in a cage publicly, guarded by British soldiers, of course, and you were left to just starve and die in public in agony to set an example of what would happen if you were caught, not with a gun, with even a bullet. Let's say you gave up all your guns the way they asked, you gave up all your ammunition, and then the British did a, a sweep of your house and they found a bullet between a desk and you know a chair, that was the punishment. So they made it very clear, even before the actual creation of the state of Israel, that Palestinians were not to defend themselves. They made that very clear that because they didn't want that. They knew what that would mean. They, they knew that this would, you know, be a headache and a thorn in the side of the, the colonialism and the creation of the settler state of Israel if Palestinians could fight back in any capacity at all. So, okay, well, we have rocks now. We have Molotov cocktails. We have homemade weapons. Now that's too much. So I don't know. Maybe the Palestinians, we should be just trying to fight with our fists as people with machine guns, you know, shoot at us. Maybe then we'd have the world's sympathy. I don't know what what we can do 
to be seen as human beings. I mean, are we not, are, are Ukrainians better than us? So inherently better that they deserve support and we do not? Like, these are human beings we're talking about, human beings who are literally living in terror, who are fighting for basic human rights. I mean, these are not people fighting for conquest. They're not fighting for riches. They're not fighting for to take anyone's resources. We're fighting for what was taken from us for no reason. Palestinians never had an army that was going around the world, you know, hurting people and killing people. Palestine never had an army. Palestinian, as we talked about, never operated as a nation state. So Palestine was not equipped for this. Palestinians were farmers and, you know, artists and educators and gardeners. And this is what our, our history is. And now we're forced to become fighters because the situation calls for it. Just like the Ukrainians were, you know, we're, let's, we're forced to become fighters, so to say. Let's just go with, you know, the narrative that we're seeing in the media. They were forced to become fighters. So now women are making weapons and men are volunteering. When Palestinians literally do the exact same thing with no difference at all, we are terrorists. And just seeing how the media treated Ukrainians and seeing how the media has treated Palestinians for decades has really, it, it was so upsetting and such a reminder of how the world doesn't see Palestinian people as human beings. And just as we're talking about this and getting into a lot of the granular to finish our thought about who we can talk about this with and in-house versus public. I guess you can invite people to the barbecue, but they can't self-invite themselves. But also skinship is not kinship. Sometimes even if they're from the same place as you, they don't necessarily always get an invite to the barbecue. Exactly right. Exactly right. I can't imagine the frustration, for example, of Black Americans seeing so many white Americans self-invite themselves to the cookout because they, you know, listen to Method Man or something. Like, it's really, it's really infuriating. And with, with Palestinians, yeah, if, you know, for, for example, I'll use you as an example, Elias, uh, Jelani, right? People that I, I trust, I'm happy to talk with them about anything to do with Palestine. But... I cannot just have someone say, oh, I'm an ally of Palestinians, let me into this conversation, because I don't know. I don't trust you. You could harm me. You could harm my people. I have to be careful. We have to guard. This is all we have left is this space that we can create, this artificial space, right? Like you've created a community. It's not a fortress. It's not a castle. That can be. We've created this community, or you have created this community. And when people infiltrate it, which I know has happened to you, um, it's a disaster. It's a huge headache, and it makes you wary of all the others that follow in their footsteps. So, yes, not all skinfolk are kinfolk, but you cannot self-invite yourself to the cookout or to the barbecue, so to speak. You have to be invited. You have to earn that. I don't even think you could call yourself an ally, right? I think it's something that we have to decide if you're an ally. You can't self-profess yourself <laughs> as the ally. Right. That's not something you get to determine. That's something for others to determine. Exactly right. Now, I think there's some confusion over the term Semitic. Can you tell the audience what Semitic means and who are Semitic people? Sure, that's a great question. There's so much confusion around that. So Semitic people are people from North Africa and West Asia. They're members of the Afro-Asiatic family. Their origins are in North Africa, I believe specifically modern-day Morocco. Uh, ancestors of Semitic people, they arrived in the Arab world from North Africa around the late Neolithic period, if I remember correctly. 
historically, the term will include Arabs, Canaanites, Hebrews, um, Ethiopians, Arameans, and Akkadians, if I, I believe, right? That's, that, those are the groups that I know are associated with the term Semitic. So Hebrew is a Semitic language, but most Israelis are from Europe or from North America. Hebrew itself as a language was revived in the 19th and 20th century to become the national language of Israel. So to put it plainly, most Arabs are Semitic. Calling Palestinians anti-Semitic is nonsensical. When people say the Palestine-Israel conflict has been happening for thousands of years, what do you say to that? I say they obviously don't know the first thing about Palestine. They, they know nothing. And they need to educate themselves before having such a, making such an outlandish statement. Israel was created with the Balfour Declaration. And I know this was covered, I believe, in, with your talk with the Palestine action. So I won't get too into it. But Israel was, the, the beginning of Israel was in the 1918, 1990, early 1900s. And Israel was officially formed as a state in 1948. So going from 1948, that means there's a 70-year history of Israel even existing. So to say that this conflict goes back thousands of years, it makes no sense. It's just, it's just not true. There's no argument for that. Before the creation of the state of Israel, Palestinian people were secular, Christian, Muslim, Jewish. I remember my, my grandfather, personally, as a personal anecdote, spoke Hebrew and had a newspaper delivered in uh, Hebrew to his, uh, to his home. Uh, I remember my family had neighbors that were Christian, Christian Palestinians will help wake Muslim Palestinians during Ramadan for Sahur so that they could eat before fasting begins. There was always a, you know, you see those corny coexist bumper stickers, but in reality, Palestine was that community for most of its history. Now, of course, there's exceptions. There's the Crusades. There's the so many, of course, it, you know, it's, it wasn't always people holding hands, right? But to say that this is a thousand year old or 2000 year old or 3000 year old conflict is just shows that you have no understanding of what's going on in Palestine. And to something you were speaking about with the double standard, what Israel with the support of the US does to Palestine isn't terrorism. But any act of resistance by Palestine is terrorism. And that's not just a racist double standard, but dehumanization as if Palestinians don't have the human experience of terror. So if we break this apart, there's more going on here than the double standard. It's also saying that Palestinians are not human because they cannot be terrorized, because they cannot feel the sensation of terror. And Israelis, are humans because they can feel terror. So there's something extra happening here that I also wanted to point out to the audience. So true. And, you know, during Israel's most recent bombardment of, of Gaza, Gaza, we saw the media show, you know, Israelis out to eat or out at brunch and, oh, the bomb alarms went off and here, look at their hiding and they had to go to the bomb shelter. Keep in mind, Palestinians have no such protection. There's no Palestinian bomb shelter. Palestinians have to sit in their homes and hope that they don't die. That's literally, and I'm not exaggerating that. That's their only option. What do you do if uh, Israeli Air Force is dropping bombs in your community and you live in Gaza? You can't leave. You can't travel. You're stuck. It's an open air prison. You can clutch your stuffed animal if you're a child. You can hold your kids if you're a parent and hope that it's not you. 
that's all you can do. But the media would rather show Israelis basking in their privilege out to eat, out at, I remember someone that literally was showing Israelis out to brunch and, oh no, look at this. They had to stop their brunch. You know, they had to put down their mimosa and they had to go over here and look at them trembling in fear. No one deserves this. It's true. Human beings shouldn't be living in fear. But why do we only show the human side of Israelis? We don't show Palestinian children. Literally, you could YouTube videos of Palestinian kids making TikTok videos, dancing and playing, and then all of a sudden there's bombs going off and they start crying and calling for their parents. This is terror. You can see the terror in their eyes. This is the definition of terrorism because they know they can't. Imagine, I know for, the, for people who are parents or have someone that they take care of, imagine knowing that you can't protect your child. You can do nothing. There's not even one option to protect your child. The, the person who your whole responsibility is to take care of, protect, and love and nurture. You can't do anything for them. That's terror. That's living under terrorism. That's living under a terrorist occupation. Israel is a terrorist occupation by definition of the word terrorist or terrorism, and no one calls it such. And it is. That's exactly what it is. Palestinians with no army, no navy, no air force, no marines, no, uh, no, not single boat, plane, or helicopter cannot terrorize the Israelis. We cannot. It doesn't make sense. How does that make sense? That's like saying a toddler, you know, or a baby in its stroller is terrorizing me as a full-grown adult and martial artist. How? The baby can do any mean thing or look at me there or throw its pacifier at me. It can't terrorize me. But I can sure terrorize the child because I have power over them. I can harm them quickly and, and, and viciously. So who is really living with terror? Who is really the terrorist in this situation? If we ignore the media changing the definition of words and making it up like as if terrorism is a, a Muslim phenomenon that started, you know, let's say in the eight, 1980s, for example. No, terror is a, fear, is a human emotion. And no one feels more terror than Palestinians living under a brutal Israeli military occupation. You look at who Western media shows smiling and happy and living their day and who they humanize, and then who they show either miserable or acting menacing and dehumanized. Then you can see who the West sees as allies and enemies. It's normal, subtle dehumanization and humanization and a powerful weapon wielded by the West their media machine. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you tell most everyday Americans that Israel terrorizes Palestinians on a daily basis, they'll look at you and laugh. Like, no, it's the other way around because that's what they have been fed for their life. So that's what they think, right? You know, the U.S. military, when it went to Iraq, it meant it's just so ironic that we think that these people were terrorizing America. American America sent the most powerful army in the world to destroy an entire country, to commit genocide against the Iraqi people. But they were the terrorists, not us. Who was living in more fear in this situation? Who was terrorized and who was doing the terrorizing? I mean, if, if words don't have meanings, then words don't have meanings. We could make things up all day. That's why they use anti-Semitic to talk about Palestinians who are Semitic people, referring to Europeans who are mostly non-Semitic people. 
like these words have meanings, you know, terror has a meaning. Terror is a real human feeling and Palestinians live under terror every day. And I always say that if the world saw Palestinians as humans, none of this would be allowed to happen. None of this would be going on. But because the world does not see Palestinians as human beings, this is allowed to happen. I know outside of Palestinian activism, you're also an advocate for LGBTQ plus rights. As a liberatory martial artist, this might sound like a given, but there are folks who find one political issue they're liberatory about, but then still default to reactionary tendencies for other things. So how did you start caring about LGBTQ plus rights? So this is such a good question because when I was, when I was in high school, I would say homophobic slurs, you know, I would, I just wanted to be, you know, that's what everybody else did. And I wanted to fit in, right? I was hiding that I'm Palestinian. So I'll, I'll use horrible language. I'll make jokes. I'll, and then I realized I am a member of a marginalized and oppressed community. What am I doing participating in the marginalization of another group of people who has never harmed me? In fact, the strongest allies Palestinians have in the Chicago community outside of fellow Palestinians is the queer community in Chicago. They are at every single Palestinian protest. Uh, there are queer organizations that don't allow Zionists, that don't, I mean, they are such strong allies. How can I, how can I participate in the humiliation and degradation of other human beings? How? It doesn't make sense. So I think you're either for the, the liberation of all people or like you said, you just pick and choose. Well, I care about Palestine because I'm Palestinian. Well, what about gay and trans Palestinians, right? What about just gay folk here in America that are fighting for Palestinian rights? They're already dealing with homophobia, and now they're going to be dealing with being called uh, terrorist sympathizers because they stand up for Palestine. So how can I participate in mocking them or feeling superior or feeling... I think these two are directly related. I think all marginalized struggles are directly related. And I see solidarity with all marginalized groups and all oppressed people. They're all my allies and I will fight for them just as strongly as I will fight for myself. You've also now trained with two well-known trans MMA fighters, Fallon Fox, who's a friend of the show and Southpaw and Alana McLaughlin, who I consider a dear friend. So how did that come about? Fallon and I, uh, we met because we both used to train at Midwest Training Center in Schaumburg, Illinois. It was a, a MMA gym with a lot of pros. Uh, Clay Guida trained there for a long time. Shoney Carter, uh, Brian Gassaway, rest in peace. Uh, um, a lot of good fighters trained there, had their start there. And Fallon was my teammate. And I always loved training with her, always got along with her. I, I wasn't aware that she was trans. and when I learned, nothing changed except for me to talk to her and message her and let her know that I support her. I have her back 100%. And when I saw how many people in the MMA world started talking about Fallon, including some of her own teammates and coaches, of course, behind her back, it was really, it was infuriating. And I don't see what people's issue is with trans folk. I have no issue with trans people. In fact, the two people you've mentioned, Fallon and Alana, are both huge supporters of Palestine and support my struggle and my fight. I'm going to support theirs. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to let this be a one-sided thing. They support me and I'm just going to be quiet as people 
mock you and insult you and prevent you from, you know, uh, competing or doing. No, I have your back 100%. I, I consider them both friends. Alana just uh, was at foundation where I trained jujitsu with uh, Elias. She was with us for the past two weeks. And my favorite part of working with her was our conversations after practice. We'd sit after practice and have really great conversations and share stories. And she's one of the few people, a uh, few, you know, white people that I know that I could just be honest with in terms of my opinions. And she agreed with all of them. It was really, it was really cool to see, you know, I'm criticizing the military and she's a person who was in the military and she'll say, yep, you're exactly right. And then she'll share a story to support my point. That's the type of person she is. So I respect Alana a lot because I know it's, she gets threats and she gets horrible messages all the time. She gets comments from, from bigots and, you know, just people who are a complete piece of shit. And I just feel bad for her because not feel bad for her. Cause I'm, I don't pity her. She's strong and she can take care of herself. I feel horrible that she has to deal with that. That's a better way of putting it. And I will also say that I want to put to rest this kind of myth that trans women are freakishly strong. I trained with Fallon for years. I thought she was a, oh yeah, she's a pretty athletic woman. That's it. She didn't blow me away. She wasn't picking me up and throwing me against the wall. She wasn't, she was like a pretty athletic woman. And I have trained with about a good half dozen cis women that are stronger than her. Now, you've also been very vocal about calling out racism and bigotry in martial arts. You've been training for a long time. Was it always bad or did it just go from bad to worse? Unfortunately, it was always bad. And, you know, has it gotten worse? Possibly. Because in my experience, I've seen it go from more of that colorblindness type of vibe that we talked about before, which, of course, is extremely problematic for many reasons, but it was more like a don't ask, don't tell. We never talk about race, sexual identity, nothing. It was like, okay, we're here to train, you know, that's it. But then after, you know, after, let's say in the 2010s, I noticed racist comments, especially after, you know, Trayvon Martin was killed because that divided a lot of people. Okay, well, you know, was he right or was he wrong? And I support George Zimmerman. If someone comes up to me, I'm going to blah, blah, blah. You know, I started to see people's people that I've trained with for years. I started to see their true colors, uh, no pun intended, and it was it was disappointing. To say the least, it was overwhelmingly disappointing. And it's very difficult to love martial arts but hate the people who participate in martial arts. And that was that was it. I mean, I'd been in gyms for years and didn't make friends. I would train with people, you know, spar with them and that's it, go home. I wouldn't hang out. I wouldn't, because I didn't feel any kinship with them because they were either ignorant or they were bigots, right? Overheard them say, uh, you know, racist stuff. And one particular example, you know, people always say Palestinians are quote unquote anti-Semitic, which of course we discussed is ridiculous. I never knew any slurs towards Jewish people the first time I heard one, I didn't know what the word now, of course I won't repeat it, but I was 25 years old and my coach, my assistant coach at a gym I trained at was calling somebody uh, a racial slur against Jewish people that starts with a, with a K. And I was like, what the hell is that? I had no idea what he was talking about. And I looked it up and I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. Like my assistant coach openly was saying this in front of several people. Uh, I couldn't believe it. and. That showed me how prevalent this was. You know, I had 
this uh, another coach, you know, like an assistant coach at a different gym. I was complaining about one of our training partners about something, you know, non-related, of course, to his race or identity. And he goes, oh, what do you expect? He's an N-word. He just says this to me. I've given him no, I've given him no, like, idea that I'm racist or that I have this <laughs> viewpoint of black folk or that I'm going to be agreeing with you. He just said that. And he kind of, like, chuckled like he expected me to laugh with him. And I, I was shocked. The fact that this guy said this so confidently to me. And I think that's part of the part of the reason that I have such a good perspective on how a lot of Americans think and operate is because I'm in that gray area. I'm not white, but I'm not black. And they can't really figure out, and most of them don't even care what I am. So they just assume that I think like them. So I have like an inside look as to how a lot of racist people think and operate. And it's really messed up. It's really messed up. And most of this was in the martial arts world. And that's why I'm so happy to see spaces like Foundation open up in Chicago, uh, my academy, Phoenix Sports Empire. We, I'm creating a place where people like me can feel comfortable. You know, both Alana and Fallon came and trained at PSE. And if anybody would say anything about them, no one did, they, they would be kicked out of the gym right then and there. This is not the space that I can, I'm not creating this type of space. There's a lot of reactionary schools. If you want to go, go to them. You'll go. There's a thin blue line flag, and there's the don't tread on me. Go, go have a blast. It's not going to be my academy. So I just think we need more of this. We need more academies. We need more Southpaws. We need more. We need to let people know that there's a community of people, and they're not alone. They're not isolated. There's someone who has your back, someone who thinks like you. I don't see why MMA or combat sports have to be aligned with bigotry and white supremacy and prejudice. Why? Can you tell me about dealing with Henzo Gracie and some of his family members and his acolytes online? Yes. And I think one of the proudest moments of my uh, career had nothing to do with fighting. It was being called uh, the Gracie Hunter after I got into a fight on Twitter with maybe three members of the, the Gracie family. In fact, I, was, I think it was Southpaw folks were like calling me that. And I'd never been so proud because uh, Sakuraba was my MMA hero, especially growing up. It was, I think it was, I forgot what it was because Henzo has done so many horribly racist things from doing the uh, racist, uh, you know, gesture or trying to, I, you know, I don't want to, I'm just going to say, you know, make, he tried to do a quote unquote slanted eyes type of, you know, picture. I'm sure you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, he quoted Nazis. He, uh, he makes homophobic comments openly. So I remember I was replying to one of the many things that he's done. And to my surprise, he, started arguing with me, started going on back and forth with me. And so then, uh, who else? One of the, I think it was not Andrew, Daniel Grace got into it with me as well. They all jumped in and started attacking me. And then Hens was like, oh, I looked at your profile and it seems like all you do is cry about, uh, you know, things going on in the world. Cry, if that's what he used, you know, because I complain about, I'm a Palestinian speaking about uh, Palestinian liberation. And I'm speaking about police brutality against black Americans. And to him, you know, that's me being a, a, a pussy crying about the, the world, right? He, I don't have his respect because a real man doesn't talk about those things. The real man only, you know, make fun of people from different ethnic backgrounds and real men quote Nazis and real men, uh, you know, support, you know, Donald Trump wholeheartedly and, and Bolsonaro. And that's what a real man does. And I just didn't fit. I'm, I'm not good enough to be considered a real man. So Henzo and his supporters really went at me. They had people messaging me, had people looking through all of my tweets, like quoting stuff from 2012, like 
it was, it was, I, I didn't expect that at all. It was overwhelming. It was really overwhelming, but I didn't back down. And I, I, I stand, you know, I'm not, I don't care about Henzo Gracie. I don't need his approval. Who is he? You know, he's just a human being. And in fact, he's a horrible human being. So if anything, I look down on him. I, I don't respect him. He's still quite popular among liberals and even some activists. Do you think there's a lesson there? Man, fuck Henzo Gracie. And I'm happy to be on record saying that. Fuck Henzo Gracie. And anyone that supports him, do a quick Google search. Type in Henzo Gracie Nazi. You type in my name in Nazi, nothing's going to come up, right? But you type in Henzo Gracie name in Nazi, you're going to see him quoting Himmler. I mean, this is a type, how can you justify being an activist and supporting someone who knowingly quotes Nazis? How? How are you, what kind of activist are you? You know, and yeah, maybe he was nice to you when he met you. A lot of sociopaths are nice to you when they meet, you know, oh, they know how to shake hands and smile. Hey, what's up, my brother? Give you a hug. That's easy to do. That's easy. And people are so fooled by that. And you're paying him too because you met him at a seminar. Exactly. Imagine. Oh, I can't believe this guy was nice to me. I paid 450 bucks, you know, to learn from him for 90 minutes. And he was just so nice to me. It's like, <laughs> yeah, because he's rich. He's rich because of you. <laughs> so yeah, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. In fact, there was a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu page and it's made up uh, of, of women and they expose this coach of theirs are, are you familiar with this story it's something re recently happened yes but they all trained with henzo gracie affiliates <laughs> like and still and people were telling them in the comments like hey by the way you're right but you do you know about henzo and they were like oh i didn't know about it. we'll have to look into this and of course they all still train with henzo gracie and then they posted pictures with him afterwards yes after people warned them like i'm like this is this is crazy like you're talking about somebody and you were right to talk about this good good on you for exposing an uh, instructor who is abusing his power and abusing his students and sexually harassing and assaulting and hurting that absolutely call him out i'm with you but then you train with someone who speaks poorly of women who quotes nazis who's racist like how how can you justify it and also the predator they were calling out is also a henzo gracie instructor so yeah, right. Exactly. Yes. Henzo Blackwell. The lesson I think is ultimately, right, that people can be full of contradictions and especially liberals. They can think one thing and there's no consistency in other things. And unfortunately, it could also happen sometimes with people who consider themselves left of liberal because that cultishness is strong. And so sometimes they choose cult over politics. Right. Right. That's so true. And we have this weird idea in martial arts that you can't stand up to somebody who can beat you up. And I don't know, I thought we were training and martial artists to become brave. I thought it was, I mean, do we pull out of every fight when somebody is bigger or better or more? No, we, we fight, we test ourselves, right? Like that's why we're in martial arts, to, to become stronger, to face our fears. So, so many people are afraid to say something like, fuck Henzo Gracie. It's like, oh, well, what if he kicks your ass? Okay, so what? Still fuck Henzo Gracie. I don't care somebody can beat me up, that means that they're morally right or that they're, you know, justified in, in saying horrible, hurtful, and harmful things. I mean, I, I don't understand this mentality that we have. What do you think about some anti-fascists and leftists taking and recommending Krav Maga, especially with zero caveats other than they love it? Or bare minimum, distancing their Krav Maga program from Israel's occupation of Palestine and disassociating 
from the main organizing body that has ties to the Israeli government. It, again, I just can't see, I can't imagine the mental gymnastics needed to justify training in a martial art that's used to oppress an unarmed populace and to harm children and old and the elderly. And I mean, how can you be inspired by this story? I think uh, we've talked about this privately, but imagine if there was a martial art marketed as, oh, this is a South African, a white South African martial art really used in the height of you know apartheid in South Africa, learned the same tactics that were used to imprison Nelson Mandela and anyone who dared speak up. We would we would laugh them out of the room. We'd be like, "What are you talking about? I would never train this." But somehow it's okay with Prof Maga. Doesn't make sense. It's it's to me. I think it's an ineffective martial art, largely. And I know that there's you can maybe perhaps make it effective. Forget that. Let's not. Let's actually ignore the effectiveness. How can you justify training in a system that its main selling point that it's used to oppress an indigenous people? How can you just, I would love to ask anyone who trained, how can you justify that? This is something that has been battle tested on Palestinian children. This has been used to, you know, it's just, I can't even fathom this. Anyone training in Krav Maga, that has that says they're an ally of Palestinians is not an ally of Palestinians to gatekeep a little bit as a Palestinian. I don't understand how you can call yourself a, an ally or somebody who supports Palestinian liberation, but also train in Krav Maga and fund with your money a martial art and a system that is used to hurt, oppress, and brutalize an indigenous population that is largely unarmed. The early mythos was about a Jewish cop who used it to fight Nazis. But the rest of the mythology is that it's the world's deadliest martial art because it's been used against Palestinians. I did a three-parter on Taekwondo and martial arts mythos and right-wing nationalism. So check that out also if you want to understand more about martial arts mythology and how it can be used. Now going back to Krav Maga, whether it truly is the deadliest art or not, to your point, that selling point should automatically be a red flag. Even a lot of its self-defense scenarios rely on fear of the racialized other. And it's about anti-terrorism, but who are the terrorists? Who causes terror and who are the ones allowed to have the human subjective experience of terror? Are the Palestinians allowed to have that same human experience? And it also flexes its connections to police across the world and the Israeli military along with Western military and intelligence in general. So do you think there's still residual racism and anti-Palestinian conditioning, even among Westerners who claim the left? Yes, I think so. And you're right in terms of martial arts, because a lot of people get into martial arts because they're afraid of somebody popping out of an alley and attacking them. But who is this person that's popping out of an alley in their mind? Who are they picturing? What are they thinking? I had a, a former client who I trained uh, in private lessons. And one day he tells me, I asked him about, because he travels a lot. So I'm curious, you know, he mentioned that he's been in Atlanta a lot frequently. And I tell him, oh, I love going to Atlanta. I have close friends there. You know, what do you like to do when you're in Atlanta? I'm hoping he's going to give me a cool restaurant recommendation that I'm not aware of, something like that, as he's been there much more than I have. And he looks at me and he says, oh, you can't go anywhere in Atlanta. 
And I'm like, what are you talking about? I was so confused. He goes, oh yeah, it's gotten so horrible. He's like, you can't even walk the streets. And I know what that means. You know, I know this, this code, I know this sort of speak and what it means. So of course I pushed further and yes, I, I was correct in my assumption. He's basically saying, oh, you know, the black people there are really out of hand. So I just stay in my hotel room. And I felt complicit because here I am training this guy, thinking that I was just training someone interested in martial arts, but I'm training somebody with an irrational fear of black people. And when I realized this, I stopped working with him and I couldn't be a part of this because this is a guy who might, you know, a black person might come up to him, ask him for directions and he's going to freak out and try to snap their arm or something because of his paranoia and, and racism. So I can't be a part of this. And I think a lot of this exists in martial arts. I think, you know, it's no different than when you see police training and their targets are, you know, black folk, or you see the IDF train with firearms and their targets are all Palestinians. Like the racism is an inherent part of the training. So I think we need to free ourselves from any sort of training or any sort of philosophy that has us fighting this fictional brown or black guy who's going to attack us. I mean, most attacks, most, some of course are random, but most attacks and fights are going to be someone you know, someone you're comfortable with, someone you've met before, someone you, who's maybe in your home. Guys aren't jumping out the alley left and right to attack you. Of course, random attacks happen. I'm not taking away from that. But if that fear is driving you to train in the martial art because you're worried about people of color attacking you, I don't know. You have a lot of, a lot of reflecting to do. You, know, you have a lot of thinking you need to do. I think martial arts makes people drop their guard and allow their default beliefs to come through. As in, this isn't the normal application of politics I'm used to, so I'll default to my gut feelings. And my gut feelings are still racist or still toxic masculinity. Yes. Yes, you're right. And I think that toxic masculinity is a, a big motivator for us to train. You know, we think, oh, I don't want anyone to be able to beat me up. Or I don't want anybody able, you know, it comes from a place of insecurity. Because, you know, masculinity in general is, to me, insecure, nothing but insecurity, or else we would just perform as ourselves and be ourselves, whoever we are. But instead, we have to perform masculinity, we have to be tough, we have to be able to beat people up. And when we think of being people up, they're usually people who are different from us. You know, I know in Chicago, a lot of people got into training because, oh, the, you know, it's not safe anymore. And what does that mean? That means there are black people and that makes me feel uncomfortable. So I need to learn how to defend myself. So that's worrisome for me as a, as a martial arts instructor and a coach. I don't want this to be a culture. I want us to want to learn martial arts. Yes. Wanting to learn how to defend yourself is fair. That's a great goal. I want to be able to protect myself. But when you have your own racial bias and prejudices kind of dictate what you mean by self-defense, that's where we begin to have an issue. Yeah. I often find the left or ally not to be useful terms because what's often called infighting is often just BIPOC fighting with racists who happen to be lefties or call themselves allies or anti-racist. It's not infighting. It's just racism. Yep, exactly right. Again, it's a self-proclaimed ally. It's a self-proclaimed anti-racist. You cannot just add these labels to yourself. You know, I was proud to be somebody who again, used to mock and, and make fun of uh, queer folk to now by the queer community in Chicago, when they trust me and can confide in me, I'm proud because I had to 
earn that. I had to demonstrate value. I had to demonstrate that I'm someone that this community could trust not to harm them or not to use information against them or not to take their, you know, what they're confiding in me and then go use it to, you know, whatever, to harm their reputation or hurt them or do something. It's something I had to earn and rightfully so. I can't just walk in a room and say, hey, don't worry, guys, I'm, I'm an ally. Prove it. You always have to prove it. And with leftists, I mean, we've seen, I don't know how much you want to get into all the uh, Southpaw stuff that you've dealt with, but it's been a lot. We've seen that over and over again. You know, I, I myself have talked about, oh, you know, I think Krav Maga is bullshit. And I've had people say that I'm anti-Semitic for that because I don't support a martial art that is used to brutalize and oppress my people. I can't even have a negative opinion of this martial art. I must hate all Jewish people and I must be an anti-Semite because I don't agree with the idea of Krav Maga. And this is amongst leftists. This didn't happen amongst, you know, the Fox News crew. This happened amongst people who are a part of a private community who call themselves leftists and who call themselves allies, marginalized people. But they're not. They're not at all. So both you and Bilal Muhammad came out of the same area. So how is the martial arts scene in the Chicago Palestinian community? There are a lot of up-and-coming uh, Palestinian fighters, as well as successful and established ones like Bilal. It's really great to see. When I started fighting, there was not many Palestinian uh, fighters. In fact, I knew of one or two. Now I can name just ones that I know. I can name about 12. And it's really great to see because I, I, when I remember when I had like my first fight 17 years ago, there was I didn't know about a single Palestinian MMA fighter. Nothing. Not even a famous one, a local one, an amateur, nothing. It was non-existent. There was no Palestinian community that would support fighters, that would support athletes. It was just non-existent. And a lot of you know Palestinian families are parents who are immigrants who push education and who push stability and who push so for something to be a cage fighter is goes against all of it, right? But now we're seeing more and more young Palestinians turn to MMA, and it's really wonderful to see. There are even gyms located in those Palestinian communities I've, I've mentioned, and their student base is, let's say, 40-50% Palestinian. It's really incredible to see. So what made you decide to take a hobby you love into becoming a professional fighter? I was so inspired by uh, the original Sakuraba highlight video on uh, Sherdog, and it's the one with the U2, like, Beautiful Day song, and when I first saw that, my life was changed. I was 13 years old. And I was like, this is it. You know, the Sakuraba beating Carlos Newton, Vito Belfort, and Hoyler. And, uh, and I was like, this is incredible. And just watching him and the techniques he was able to use, the creativity I saw on display, the showmanship. You know, I grew up uh, liking superheroes and pro wrestling and cartoons. So to me, this was like the real life superhero this is the real deal and uh you know i wanted to be a superhero when i was a kid and somehow i you know i didn't make that happen and this seemed to be like the next best thing <laughs> so sakuraba broke henzo gracie's arm and then you broke henzo gracie on twitter so i continued the legacy of, of sakuraba <laughs> i hope he's proud of me <laughs> who knew it would somehow like all poetically come together <laughs> yeah 20 years later imagine that if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. 
It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. Did you ever get into street fights? Very few. Um, I always tried to avoid them, and I, I've participated in traditional martial arts since really early childhood, since about four years old. And, you know, it was always, we were always talked about how we don't use this for fights, it's just to defend yourself. And, you know, there's a lot of bullshit in the traditional martial arts in terms of the, the discipline and the character building and this and that. But that was one thing that did stick with me. I always knew that I don't want to just get into fights, this is to defend myself. The few fights I did get into were more than enough. They were pretty brutal. Uh, I had fights like when I was in high school age where it was me and a few friends against people from a local college and it was just grown men and we were fighting them. And my friends thought that I would be some kind of superhero able to fight six people, seven people all at once. <laughs> so they didn't jump in until I really had my hands full and then they you know, helped me out. It was a huge fight. It spilled over to a a major street near the high school I went to the street was it was it was very wild and after that I said okay I really have to limit how much this happens because there was cars driving by us people were going to the hospital like it was something out of a, a movie I, I didn't think street fights were really like that but this one was it was absolutely ridiculous and the sad part is I didn't even have an issue with the people I was fighting I was recruited to help fight we were at a high school football game and they're like, come on, we got Rami, Rami, let's go, let's go. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm in, let's go, let's go. I don't even know what they're talking about, what the issue is, what we're fighting about. All of a sudden, eight or 10 grown men, to me at the time, I'm you know 16, maybe 15. So to me, community college students are grown men. They jump out of the back of a pickup truck like it's a movie and start running at us. And I'm like, oh my God, this is actually terrifying. This is not like, sparring in you know in my academy this is terrifying and just the look on people's faces when they're in that sort of fight as compared to competition that look of sheer hatred and anger and the intent behind every strike it's not enjoyable like sparring is enjoyable it's not a technical game and a back and forth this is i'm trying to hurt you as quickly as i can and just that intensity is just too much for me i'm not a confrontational person i don't like arguing or even verbal fights so for me this was really outside of my personality especially when these people i don't know them and i realized i was just being used by my friend group because they knew that i would be a useful person in this fight and to this day i can't tell you what it was about and i went home i was you know bruised up and you know i had my necklace taken from me during the fight i had it was just a disaster and i i realized that okay, this isn't something you play around with. I saw how quickly this stupid school fight could become deadly. Because again, cars were driving past, people were on the street, people were kicking each other's head while they were on the ground. Like I'd never seen anything like this. I always say, I always tell my students, talk yourself out of a fight, try to use your words, try to you know calm them down. If somebody calls me a name, I'm not gonna fight them. I only wanna fight if I'm physically in danger. You know, I didn't intend on fighting. I didn't pursue a fight. I didn't pick a fight. It just kind of happened, I guess. And it was overwhelming. And 
I didn't enjoy that experience of, of just hurting somebody. I, you know, it's different than fighting in the ring. Oh, really? Yeah. So then tell me about the Rami challenge you had back in high school. Oh, man, how'd you know about that? <laughs> so I was, uh, oh, man, this is amazing. I wasn't expecting this. So when I was in high school and, you know, trained by the Sure Dog Sushi Sakuraba highlight video, I, I was like, you know, I, that's the, I wanted to be somebody. You know, I was picked on and I was bullied and I was made fun of. And I knew that this was an advantage I had. I've been in martial arts and I started training myself in grappling and MMA. I would invite friends who had, let's say, a wrestling background or a judo background who had done, you know, boxing for a year. And I would train with them and I would spar with them. And I noticed I was winning. So then I <laughs> made this challenge and I said, okay, anyone in this school, if you can beat me in a fight, I'm going to give you $500. Of course, I don't have, I don't have fifty dollars, let alone five hundred dollars. Oh, you're like a real promoter. <laughs> don't even have the money to pay your fighters. I don't have the money. I don't have the money. I'm Dana White. I don't have any. I'm not paying anyone anything. So, <laughs> so I would invite people. My parents both worked full time, so I had like a two or three hour window every day after school in which you know I had the house to myself. So we would all take the people would jump on my bus route. You know, I had forty or fifty extra people in my bus route. We'd go. I had an eight foot by eight foot judo mat that I bought for, I think, $199. I saved up money from some part-time job I was working, and I purchased the small judo mat. And I had the karate, like sparring gloves, like really cheap, you know, cloth uh, with, you know, very poor protection. And the karate, like in shin guard slash instep, and really just iffy headgear. And I had enough <laughs> for me and somebody else. So we put on all the equipment, and we would fight. And we wouldn't have rounds. We wouldn't have, we would just go until there was a submission or a TKO. I would have some uh, friend who's also the cameraman recording and they would be the referee as well. And I fought anybody, anybody who thought they could beat me. I took it personally. Like, how dare you think you could beat me? And now I realize how much I was overestimating my abilities. I really thought I was, again, that superhero that I wanted to become. But no one ever beat me. I beat everybody. And it was because I had, some knowledge that they didn't. It wasn't because I was exceptional at anything. And I just, I really didn't want to pay that 500 bucks that I didn't have. So I wouldn't give up. I would just keep fighting. And as I did this, I kind of grew this reputation and I began to be respected by my peers and I began to have more friends. And it's funny how it took violence to finally fit in and, and be seen as somebody worthwhile. <laughs> and thank goodness, no one ever, no one ever won. I never had to pay out that money, but yeah, that <laughs> it sounds so stupid. I'm so embarrassed talking about it now. But yeah, this was this really happened in Plainfield, Illinois, from like 2001 till 2005. I did the same thing. No way. I'm older than you, so I did this after UFC one. Me and my friends saw UFC one, and then in our high school, I did a challenge. Like anybody at lunch, you think you could beat me? And I said, I wouldn't even hit them. They could do whatever they want. I would just beat them with grappling. No way. I think because like, I really liked pro wrestling at the time. And I fancied myself where like, oh, I can understand how those grappling moves happened, right? I thought I was really good at learning from watching the video, like just from my understanding how Brett the Hitman Hart operates, because he was like more of a technical grappler, right? My favorite. Yep. So when UFC 1 came out, I had the video, I kept watching it over and over and over. And then UFC 2 came out, I kept watching it over. And I found some videotapes of like, you know, Gracie's in action and I watched it over and over and over. And 
I learned like a very rudimentary arm bar from guard. I understood to like wrap my legs around them and just very, very simple things that you actually would learn in beginner Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I had taught it to myself. So basically it was like, they just come, you know, everybody comes in with the big haymaker. I just wrap them up. It would be like a lot of these things would last like a minute or two minutes, but it would feel like 20 minutes because so much adrenaline. Oh my God. I can't believe you did this. I can't believe it. No wonder we get along so well. Yep. <laughs> you, you did the same thing. Now looking back, imagine if somebody that we said we could beat up happened to, you know, take jujitsu or was a phenomenal wrestler who also boxed for two. Imagine what could have happened to us with this challenge. So we're so lucky that we had a little bit more knowledge than the people we fought or else this could have been a complete disaster for the both of us. You couldn't replicate this today. There was like a certain window you could do this when nobody knew anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now you look at even street fights and like people are throwing tie knees and like going for heel hooks. Yep. People who don't even train, they just learned it just from watching UFC. So it's like a whole different ballgame now. Exactly right. At the other time, it's like you spoke a language that they didn't speak at all. So if you know, you know the basics, that's it. You could get by. Even if they were self-taught basics, like you and I had taught ourselves, that was it. That's all we needed. Tell me about lying about your age for unsanctioned MMA fights. <laughs> yes. my So I had this, uh, there was a promotion in Indiana and because there was no promotions in Illinois at the time that I knew of. So I emailed this one promotion um, and I could say their name. They haven't been in business for over 10 years. Uh, Elite Cage Fighting. And I emailed them and I said, hey, you know, I'm Rami. I'm 17. I have a Shotokan background and I really want to fight. So can you, can you guys help me get a fight? The promoter responds back, oh, sorry, you have to be 18, you know, but when you're 18, hit us up. So I didn't accept this. I'm like, no, 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 this isn't happening. So I emailed them again, maybe like two weeks later. And I even used the same email and everything. And I said, hey, my name's Rami. I'm 18 and I really want to get a fight. They're like, okay, you got it. And they never checked my ID. They never checked anything. They didn't ask for any proof that I was 18. In fact, now looking at it, how did they not know? I used the same email. I didn't change my name. I just emailed them again saying I was 18. So that's it. They hooked me up with a fight against a guy who was one and one. And I drove to Indiana with two of my friends where my corner met, stayed in a hotel, in a hotel, <laughs> right, at 17 years old uh, because the promotion had the room ready for us and everything and fought in a cage fight with Josh Rafferty from season one of The Ultimate Fighter as the referee. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to, at the time, I was working a retail job at Hollister at the mall close to me. And while I was there, I used to practice elbows because in this, even though it's an amateur fight, get this, you could throw elbows and you know on the ground and on the feet, and you can kick to the head if the person had you in a submission. So if a guy's going for like an arm lock, you could soccer kick them. These were the rules in this promotion. So I remember folding stacks of t-shirts at Hollister, and then I would practice my elbows over and over. I just keep hitting the stacks of t-shirts. But in that fight, in the second round, I got mount position, and I started throwing elbows, just like I practiced against the t-shirts. Muscle memory is muscle memory. And I won via TKO uh, from elbow strikes from mount. And that was it. My life changed after that. My parents had no idea. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, yeah, it was just, again, I just, I had to fight. It was something I felt that like, I have to do this. Not I want to, I have to do this. I have to participate in this. <laughs> 
this is where our paths diverged because we both did the challenge stuff in high school. I had my own unsanctioned MMA bouts. This was probably a decade before you. So it was like really early on where most of the fights were unsanctioned, right? I see. But what I learned was I thought I liked, well, I do like MMA, but I thought I wanted to fight. I thought I liked fighting and then I did them. I didn't like it. I realized I did not like it. I liked helping other people train. I liked coaching, but you know, I did it. I was like, okay, I got it out of my system. I felt that for you, it was a calling. Whereas for me, I knew I loved MMA, but I loved breaking it down. I loved understanding it. I loved training it. I even liked hard sparring. You know what I didn't like? I didn't like people watching. So much of it was the stage fright. You know, I think that's part of it too. I think it's like, you got to like it and you got to also like being a performer. Right, right. Yes, absolutely. Because we both know a lot of gym killers who we've seen tap out high level fighters, but then, you know, they might have a record of 0-2 or... They don't want to fight at all. They won't even make their amateur debut, even though they routinely beat high-level pros in the gym. We see it all the time. There's always the guy, like, you want to brag. You're telling all your friends, dude, we have this guy at the gym. He's going to be the next UFC champion. Because his potential in the gym, right, they could be a UFC champion because you see who they're beating. But then when they actually get their first big fight, maybe in the UFC or somewhere else, they're just not the same person. You could see the look on their face is not the same. The lights, the announcer the audience, hearing everybody. And then you could just tell they're not even hearing their coaches anymore. And then that's the last time you ever see them fight. There's so many of those stories. So true. Every gym, I think, has the gym killer. And people say, man, if only you knew how good this person was, but that's it. you know. Like, And then there's someone like Clay Guida, who I've trained with and seen trained so many times. And you see him in the gym and you're like, oh, okay, this guy's like a, you know, you'd, you'd expect that he's an average at best fighter because you see people beat him on the feet, tap him out on the ground, and out-wrestle him. But then he fights in the UFC and just brings an intensity and a pace and a toughness that, you know, it's not something you're going to see in the gym as much because you're not going 100%. It's not a fight for survival, so to speak. Like, you're, you're just training. So some people shine in that training environment and then crumble when it's time to compete. And that's okay. That doesn't mean they're any less of a martial art. That just means, you know, they're meant for this. Maybe you're going to be The training partner is the most important person in the gym, right? The coach is the most important part. Fighters are going to come and go, but you can teach until you're 90 years old. I mean, you could pass on information to people generation after generation. Fighting, you have a very short window. So for me, fighting is just a part of the martial arts journey. It's not the end-all, be-all. And I don't like when people look at it that way, like people who fight are you know, necessarily, I don't know. I don't know. I do respect it. I respect people who compete a lot, but... Some people just, they're not meant to fight. They just don't have it in them or they don't want to. And, you know, more power to them. The most famous California example I know of is Dave Terrell, where he was supposed to be the best guy out of Cesar Gracie's camp, better than Nick Diaz, Jake Shields, all of those guys. Right. He had panic attacks before he fought and he just couldn't fight anymore. And so that's why he just disappeared very early in his career. Wow. He was so talented too. So to your point, right? Some people, it's just, they have the ability, but something about doing it in front of people that performing, they just can't do it. It's not just that they don't like it. They just can't do it. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's, yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, if you're having panic attacks for every fight, I mean, I get, I get nervous. I get very nervous. I doubt myself. I go, but I've never had a full-blown panic attack. If I had a panic attack every time I competed, I would stop competing because this isn't good for my mental health. I'm not 
especially if it didn't get better after time, right? If it happens 20 times, yeah. well, okay, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah, panic attacks aren't good for you. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. You know, maybe it happens okay in your debut, but then the next fight, you're very nervous, but it's not to that level where you're dry heaving and about to pass out. If it's the same every single time, I mean, good on, I respect people who put themselves through this despite what it may take for them to do it, but you don't have to do it. So you, don't, you don't have to martyr yourself to prove yourself to anybody. There's a lot of roles in the martial arts world and they're all equally important. Now you haven't fought in a while, but I know you just fought and want to fight again later in the year. Were you retired for a while and decided to come back or were you just taking a break and it got extended? I think it was the latter. I had uh, you know, a lot of issues happen with the gym I used to train at and so trying to think how to best put this. So I had a few amateur fights and then I, I went pro and I went pro at the time when, you know, you didn't need as much of an amateur background to turn pro. And like in my, yeah, in my third fight, it was already a pro fight because I just applied to this organization and they're like, okay. And they put me on as a pro. That was it. So it's not like I had to really fight my way to become a pro. So now I'm thrown into the mix as a professional and I won my first three fights all in the first round and it was going great. I had some hype around me in the local like scene and people thought, oh yeah, like in a year or two, you're going to be in the UFC and this and that. I even had a manager and signed a contract and this and that. I had the same manager as uh, Curtis Blades and a few other uh, good fighters from the area. And two weeks before my fourth pro fight, I found out that one of my coaches, lo and behold, the one who used the racial slurs was... Uh, sexually harassing one of my teammates uh, a woman in my in my gym and i found this out in the middle of a practice left my gym never came back of course tried to recruit anyone in my gym i told him hey this is what's going on at this gym if you have any integrity at all you're going to leave with me because do you want to be a part of this and a lot of people did leave uh including curtis blades and you know so it was a big loss for this gym but now the downside is I have a fight in two weeks. I have no coaches. I have no corner. And, you know, I, I hear stories about people, oh, you know, his father passed away and he was still able to fight. I can do it, but I don't have, I don't think I have that in me. I need to really be like fighting for me is a huge mental thing. I come from a, a childhood of self-doubt, low self-esteem and not believing in myself. So I really, my mind has to be right for me to compete, especially in a, a pro MMA bout. And this was the first fight I ever had where not only was I not looking forward to competing, I kind of knew I was going to lose. It was the way I'd never felt this before. And I had lost as an amateur before, but I never, I still went in thinking hundred with hundred percent confidence, but this fight, something was off. Something wasn't right. And I fought and I lost and just my impression of the sport had soured so much. I have a, coach, you know, in a team who I'd been with for years, who I find out to me are complete scumbags. Uh, it kind of like ruined my, my love for the sport. And of course, if I was meant to be a, a full-time fighter and being the, you know, UFC champion, I would have kept going. But I realized, I don't know if I'm enjoying this anymore. I don't know if I'm enjoying this community anymore. So my original plan, I'm just going to take a break, work on my skills and get back to it. But I don't come from a situation where I can just sit around. I need to work. I need to pay bills. I'm, you know, living on my own. I need to take care of myself. So I really 
went into teaching and coaching. And my idea was, okay, you know, when the gym gets settled and, you know, things are running smoothly, then I'm going to get back to fighting. Turns into one year, turns into two years. And I'm realizing the gym is never going to magically be in this like smooth situation where I'm, I don't run it like a, a Gracie Baja school. I mean, I'm very hands-on uh, with everything. You know, I'm, I'm involved with the, the billing, the accounting, talking to people, answering questions, teaching the overwhelming majority of the classes, going with people to competitions, to workshops. Like I'm there. I'm really there for my students. And just time flew by. And before I realized that it's been seven years since my last fight, I thought maybe I would take three months of a break. But the older you get, life just seems to keep going quicker and quicker. And now at 34 years old, I realize I don't want to have regrets when I'm 67 years old. I don't want to be one of these people that said, I could have did this and I could have done this. I'm going to try. And if I fail, so be it. But I'm at least going to give it one more shot and see what I can do. And that way I'll be content with whatever the result is. But I'll never forgive myself if I just stopped fighting for no good reason and never pursued it again. I knew, because I already started to feel those pains of regret after two years, three, and it, it got worse and worse and worse. So I decided I'm going to do something about it. You know, I started training with uh, Elias. I recently, like this year or maybe late last year, joined the, the pro practices at VFS with very high level fighters. And the level, the skill level has jumped since I was actively competing. Now, amateur fighters are just as good as, or if not better than the pros from when I was, this is 2014, 2015, not 20 years ago. I'm talking about eight years ago. The skill level is phenomenal. I was training with this one guy at VFS and I was like, hey, so you know what's your record? He's like, oh, I'm about to have my amateur debut. This guy is a machine, phenomenal wrestler, good striking, good conditioning, great athlete. I'm thinking, who is going to compete with this person in his first fight? Like I, at the time, eight years ago, this guy would have been a low to mid-level pro. So it's going to be a hard, it's, it's hard and it's humbling to come back and, and work from, you know, the bottom because at this new gym I'm at, outside of tra my training with the Leaston Foundation, they don't really know me and they have no reason to. So I'm treated based on my merit and what they see as my skill level. So if I'm not doing good, they'll be like, okay, go train with the, amateurs in this room we need space for the pros and here i am they don't know that i've had four professional fights so it's humbling it's humbling to work my way up and and kind of gain that all back but it's also fun and when i do well and i do well against good fighters that have a name and have recognition it shows me i can do this you know i'm i'm lucky i'm a young 34 i've never had bad injuries i've never had a, a concussion i've never had you know because i haven't fought that much i only had four pro fights and I had my first pro fight maybe 2008. It's been 14 years, but I've only had four fights. So my body's pretty well preserved. Whereas other people I know that have been fighting consistently, they're 28, 29, 30, and they're retired, they're done, their body is shot. So I'm lucky that my body is in good position or a good form and good condition. And I can do this. I have a few years to, to do it. And I'm going to just see what happens. I'm, and if I get to a point, Sam, where I'm not enjoying it or I'm not having fun with it, I'm going to get out. I'll get back to coaching. I have a wonderful academy, great students. I'm not going to force myself to do this. I don't need to do this, but I have some sort of driving force and I'm still trying to understand what that is to be really, to be really candid with you. I don't know what the driving force is, but it's there and I feel like I just have to follow it. What are your thoughts on heart sparring? This is something that I'm 
really into discussing. In fact, the foundation recently had a seminar with Kenny Florian. And before the seminar, he was just chatting with some of the members. And I asked him, I had few, you know, I had time to ask him, I had 10 minutes or so to chat with him before the seminar was about to start. And one of the things I want to ask him is what he thinks about hard sparring. And his answer was very interesting because it made me feel good because it was very similar to my approach, but this is after years and years. At my former school uh, that I'd left in the middle of camp for my fourth pro fight, the sparring was done at 100%. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, people were getting knocked out. It was normal. People would get knocked out. Uh, you know, every week. And if you were knocked out, it was like, oh, well, yeah, you should have had your hand up. You should have done this. It's your fault. There was no care. There was no empathy. And at that gym, they the fighters there did well, but I would notice people would fade out in their late 20s. And I'm like, what's going on? And I would even skip some sparring days. So they would spar Tuesday, kickboxing. They would spar Thursday night, kickboxing with takedowns, like shoot boxing. And Saturday, MMA sparring with MMA gloves. And the Saturday was supposed to be less intense because we're wearing MMA gloves, but of course it wasn't. So essentially three times a week, you have guys going 100%, hurting each other, causing injuries, knocking people out. You know, Fallon could attest to this, how hard people went at this gym. And I always knew this was wrong. You know, despite trusting in my coaches and, and understanding that they have more experience than me and they know better, I just, this didn't feel right. I don't think people are supposed to be getting knocked out in training, maybe in a freak accident, but not routinely. And now I'm glad because I used to be considered one of my coaches used to kind of think I was a coward because I didn't show up to every sparring session. It's not that I was afraid of sparring. I enjoyed sparring, but I'm like, this can't be good for me to get bashed in the head three times a week for years. I don't think this is a good way. Not only is it not good for me, I don't think this is the best way to train because I noticed my skills weren't improving. I wasn't trying new things in sparring. I wasn't opening up. I was doing whatever I was best at just to survive. And now that I train in healthier environments, my skills have progressed so much where I realized I wasted a good six, seven years training at this toxic academy because they had a good stable of professional fighters. I thought that means that meant that they knew what they were doing, but apparently not. So what I think, Sam, to, you know, sorry, very long answer to your question. I think that when you compete, the number one thing that is shocking to me is the speed and the intensity of the fight. Because when you get hit in a fight, you don't really feel it. The adrenaline takes care of that. You could tell, okay, this was a hard punch. This one was a soft, or not soft punch, but you know, this one's going to do damage, or I can't take shots like this. But there's not the actual physical sensation of pain. It's more like it's a heavy shot. But what really gets to me, or what was different for me from sparring and fighting, is the speed. You know, people are going at 100% speed and moving quick in the sense of urgency. It created a, a different type of timing. So my philosophy is high speed, but lower power, because we're not going to condition each other's brains to receive and take blows, right? That's asinine to, to, to think this way. But we could train at fight speed. I have good control and I teach my students to have great control. You know, you could go a little harder to the legs and to the body. But to the head, we're not going to try to hurt each other. And that's uh, Kenny Florian and uh, other fighters I had spoken to. They kind of agreed with this method. And they, they brought that up on their own without me sharing my philosophy. Of course, I'm not there to share my philosophy with someone with more experience. I want to hear what they have to say. But I, I felt good seeing the, this trend of less hard sparring and more technical training, more drilling. If you see a professional 
basketball team, their practice is not them just playing games all day. They have specific drills that they do, right? And this is the highest level of sports with millions and millions of dollars being paid and, you know, billions of dollars at stake. And look at how they train with all the research and science behind them. They don't just play their sport all day. They have specific technical things they do, and then they'll do scrimmages. And I think MMA should follow suit. We should have a lot of technical drilling, high intensity drilling. You know, you start with low resistance, you go all the way up to 100% resistance, and we should have smart, controlled sparring. And when you see somebody is getting hurt or is taking too much punishment, you force them to take time off, you lower the intensity, you put them with different partners. And that's, I think, the problem with a lot of these mega gyms with 50 or 60 pro fighters is the coaches can't really keep an eye on what's going on. And they don't want to, they don't want to hinder the progression of like their star fighters. So they'll let their star fighters and athletes kind of get away with being, you know, assholes during training. And they won't tell them, Hey, you need to bring it down a little bit. Your training partner is just getting clobbered here. They're not gaining anything. And also you're not improving. What are you getting out of just beating the hell out of somebody for five minutes? You know, make them into a challenging sparring partner. So I tell my students, if you're sparring with somebody and you're just on a different level, Pick something. Work just your slips. Can you slip all their punches? You know, work your weakest. What's your weakest technique? Okay, it's your right hook to the body. See if you could land four right hooks to the body this round. How can you set them up? Look at it as a way to get better rather than I need to compete with this person and prove that I'm better than Let's say you're teaching a self-defense workshop for activists to defend themselves during a protest. But you know you'll only see them once. And this is the only thing they'll ever take. It's meant to be just a one-off, a one-time workshop. And you only have a few hours with them because that's the hard part about teaching anything like this. It's not that you don't know enough stuff. It's about what to show when you don't know if you'll ever see them again. And you don't know whether they'll ever practice this stuff again. Because slipping is better than blocking a punch because even when you block, you still take damage. But slipping takes way more practice than blocking, right? So what ends up being the essentials for a workshop like this where they'll walk away with something? That's such a great question. And I think that is my issue with self-defense you know, workshops and seminars, which as you know, I, I, I lead some of them. I've done them at different universities. I've done them for different uh, marginalized groups. I've done them for you know, uh, queer groups, for student groups, for sororities. I've done them for, and I think about this a lot. Because I notice a lot of self-defense instructors are dishonest and they create this delusion that, oh, after you train with me for an hour, you could defend yourself against anyone. And that's frustrating because delusion is not a good thing when it comes to self-defense. You know, you, you don't want to overestimate your abilities and let that end up being your downfall. And so one, I tell them right from the beginning, the first thing I'll share in the seminar is that Training one time is not going to guarantee that you are safe when somebody attacks you. And what my goal is for not you to memorize a series of elaborate techniques, if you are just going to practice this one time and you're not going to follow through and you know pursue more training, then I'm going to try to teach you a few concepts that you could understand. Concepts over techniques, right? So if you have one day with someone, I say, hey, if you ever get into a fight, put, tuck your chin. Until it's touching your chest, keep your elbows in. You know, if I teach them concepts, they can remember that elbows in, chin down. But if I teach them, okay, jab, cross, uh, you know, pivot, low kick, 
grab the clinch, throw knee. They're not going to, how do I grab? Where do I, you know, it's too much. Even that rudimentary arm bar that we taught ourselves, right? How many weeks <laughs> did it take us? Absolutely. And we were obsessed with pro wrestling and martial arts and training. So of course we were obsessed. These are obsessed people. Uh-huh. Exactly right. You know, if I'm training someone at a workshop, they might even resent martial arts and fighting, but they're here because, okay, maybe I'll, uh, this will be helpful for me, right? But they're not obsessed with it. They don't have a passion for it. And so I have to teach from, from that standpoint. So I try to teach concepts, you know, start simple, okay? Wrist escapes, if somebody grabs your wrist, turn towards the weakest part of their grip, and you could exit, you could remove this way, and it might be a struggle, but, you know, I show concepts that, and I make them practice over and over. And then I'll say, okay, are you comfortable with practicing with me? So if I grab your wrist, I want to see that you could get out. I'll grab their wrist as hard as I can and make them work their way out. So one, it shows them that it's important to, this isn't a magic trick. This isn't something that can just be done instantly. And that two, you can do it. If I'm, you know, I'm pretty strong and athletic and if I can grab you and you're smaller than me and not as strong and not as athletic and you can get away, that should give you some confidence. But I just, it's, I always struggle with this balance of, I don't want anyone to leave this delusion. So I teach concepts, very basic stuff, you know, technical stand up. Okay, you're on the ground. Here's how you can stand up, you know, and this is why that it's safer to stand up this way than to stand up with your head closer to their, you know, weapons, which their hand, their feet, their knees. Um, if somebody tries to pin you against the wall, here's some concepts to remember. Somebody grabs you from behind and has like, you know, lock around your waist here's a way and i try to teach them concepts weakening grips breaking grips staying in balance you know fleeing running away when you have the ability to do so uh, i urge people to have pepper spray or to have different you know options so i really try to make it as realistic as possible because i don't want to feel guilt that i'm misleading people and that's what i notice a lot of people will a lot of, I've not a lot, but I've had some participants be disappointed. And then they'll say like, you know, I took this other self-defense seminar and they said, if somebody does me, I should just strike the groin and do this. And I try to relate to them. Okay. You're against, let's say you're a woman and a bigger, stronger man is attacking you. Yes. The groin is a vulnerable area. It's going to be painful. But sometimes like if you kick somebody, it's not a movie. If you hurt someone. Now they might have a stronger reaction to what you're doing. Like there's, there's, it's not a, secret weapon you know say oh kick the kick the knee with your heel or do this or do and they just it's really messed up and you have to kind of work against all the bs that they're learning and the worst part is they're learning self-defense from the idea that it's a guy jumping out of an alley and unfortunately especially for women most of the time overwhelmingly and this is from my study this is from me you know i'm not i can't speak from a position of authority but i've gone to uh, many survivor speakouts where survivors of sexual assault and abuse speak very candidly about their experience, and it's it's really it's very difficult to listen to for anybody with empathy, of course, but it's much more difficult to go through. So I listen. I don't say anything. I listen. I listen. I take in. I realize that most of these survivors, the person that attacked them was someone they knew. It was their uncle. It was their stepdad, it was their cousin, it was their ex-boyfriend, it was the guy that they rejected, it was the, somebody that they know, somebody who's been in their home before, someone who goes to school with them, someone who works with them. It's coming from a place of familiarity, not a guy jumping out of an alley. Again, this can happen, but the overwhelming majority, 
having, again, it's anecdotal, it's my experience, but having listened to hundreds of survivors speak about what happened to them, the overwhelming majority have been harmed by someone that they knew. And if the only move you know is tearing out somebody's eyeballs, right? Yes. And now you have to do it to somebody you previously trusted and liked, and now you have confused feelings about what's happening because they're violating you. You know, that one move that you know might be so violent. Maybe you could do it to a stranger jumping out at you, but you can't do it to this person that you know. So now that move is useless, right? So a lot of those moves that are designed for strangers often become useless when you have to do it against somebody who you know, somebody from within your own in-group. So that's why concepts are better anyway, because then you could apply that concept in a way that's appropriate to the situation and what you feel like you could honestly do to this person in the situation where you're trying to defend yourself. Exactly right. And what about, you know, there's sometimes that you can de-escalate. There's sometimes you can outsmart this person and escape and go to find safety or go find help. So you don't want right away, okay, this person, let's say, grabs your wrist and you're going to eye gouge them, grab their testicles and twist and try to rip them off. Like, what if there's a better way? You know, if there's a, if there's no better way and this is your option, go for it. I support somebody defending themselves against someone trying to harm them. But it can't be a one-size-fits-all method. And I think self-defense instructors really have to be honest with themselves and stop taking money from people who are scared and who need their help. And instead, you teach them a bunch of bullshit and give them a false sense of security. And hopefully, they never are in this situation because they're going to get hurt trying the stuff that, you know, if you get into a striking match against a bigger, stronger person, and you have no striking training, what if they start hitting you? What if they meant to grab you and now you punch them and they're like, okay, now I guess we're, now you have a bigger, stronger person punching and kicking you and kneeing you. Like you have just changed the dynamic when we don't know it could have been a different dynamic. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't want any of this to be misconstrued as don't defend. Please defend yourself to the best of your ability. But we can't, as martial artists and instructors, we can't teach a one size fits all way of self defense. And we can't teach people that, hey, this will work no matter what. If you kick this guy in the groin, that's it, right? You know, you got him. No, they could now maybe the person's more furious and now they're going to do this, right? There's, it's situational. And that's why I think concepts and fundamentals and principles are the best, along with the knowledge that if they really want to be able to apply these techniques well, that they should continue their training in some capacity. I mean, most self-defense instructors are cishet men, right? Usually white. So whatever scenarios they can come up with that they can imagine, that's still coming from that guy, which might not be realistic to the actual situations that marginalized people or women find themselves in. So then only they can know the situations they'll be in or have been in. So it's better to give them something a little bit more broad that isn't one size fits all and then let them determine how to best use that in their own situation. Exactly. Exactly right. If you give someone the principles, they can run with it and they can change them and apply it to whatever situation they are in. If I say heel kick to the knee, kick the groin and eye gouge, that's not something they could take to every situation. They can't take that to a guy at a bar holding on a hug a little bit too tight. They can't take that to the guy at the party who's trying to bring them into a room away from everybody else. You can't take that into these situation. They don't work in these situations, right? 
what's an oppressive way to teach martial arts, right? Because you're determining what's right for them instead of allowing them to determine what's right for them. Exactly. You have to give options and you hope that this person, when they are in the situation, that they use the best option. That's, that's the most we can do. We can't guarantee anyone's safety, right? Even you and I, with years, a lifetime of training, somebody could come up behind us and hit us in the head and then their friends come and soccer kids. We're helpless. We're only human beings, but we have a bunch of different options. And that's what is going to hopefully keep us safe if we ever need to defend ourselves. So all you could do is give people good options and try to show them which, you know, just show them the principles, show them basics and be honest with what you're teaching and be honest with what they can expect from what you're teaching them. Since you're both a fighter and a coach, do you find coaching requires different skills than when you're a fighter? Yes. And I think we can both think of examples of great coaches who are poor fighters and great fighters who are poor coaches. And um, I think it's a completely different skill set. I think to be a good coach, you have to be patient. You have to be understanding. You have to teach to whoever your audience is. You have to know your, your student and how they best learn. To be a fighter, you don't need any of that. You're just there to, to destroy this person as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. You don't need you know, some of these skills that you need to be a coach. You need to be a good communicator to be a coach. You need to have good people skills, good social skills. You need to treat people with respect so that they respect and trust you. Like it's a completely different ball game, I think. And some, some of the qualities, you know, can can mix together. But overall, I think it's a completely different, completely different thing. All right, Rami, this was an illuminating conversation. Can you tell the audience where they can find you online and info about your school? Sam, I really appreciate you, and I just want to say, anyone listening to this, please support Southpaw, support their Patreon. Uh, check out their merch. I have two of their shirts. They're two of my favorite shirts. I wear them all the time. And this is such a wonderful community you've created. And I've never had this type of community in martial arts. And I've been doing martial arts now for 30 years. And Sam and Southpaw have created a community where I feel like I can express myself, be myself, speak with like-minded people. So I, I just encourage anyone listening to support these good people and everything they're doing. They're wonderful people. And you know, they really deserve their support. So if you have the ability, please sign up for the Patreon, support them. No one told me to say this, by the way, I swear. <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't tell you this. No, I promise. But it's it's really important because you've really done a great thing here. I mean, I've created friends from this community that feel like lifelong friends, you know, and I trust, you know, the friends I've made like you and the, and the few others. I trust, I trust you all 100% with anything. I could share my, you know, my feelings towards certain topics. And I can't do that with everyone else. I don't feel safe doing that. So Southpaw is a community that I feel safe in. If you're a marginalized person or a BIPOC, or you feel like you don't fit in your MMA school, your martial arts school, you will fit in here. And in fact, this community will help you find a good school in your area that maybe isn't as reactionary or isn't as, you know, ignorant or homophobic or racist. So uh, in terms of where they could find me, you could find me on Instagram at Rami the Giant. You could find me on, if you want to check out my academy, it's Phoenix Sports Empire. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. And um, yeah, if anyone has any questions, wants to chat about anything I discussed or you know wants to argue with me, 
please feel free, reach out. I love chatting and meeting new people. So yeah, just at Rami the Giant on Instagram, let's let's chat, let's become friends, and let's train together. Great. I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you, Rami. Thank you so much, Sam.